0: goes. It it develops. These ideas emerge into my brain and and just fully fledged, and then I I can't ignore them. It's like a vibe that defines my whole life right now. Uh, I'm calling it savage witchcraft. I mean, because if you're going to have a whole vibe for your life, you might as well go with 1950s Pulp Fiction. Savage witchcraft. What is savage witchcraft? It is utterly and completely divorcing you from uh, divorcing yourself uh, you if you so choose, divorcing yourself from the madness of this ridiculous world that we find ourselves in. So what do I mean by that? DIYing everything, not just parting from the flock, but running, ma- marathon sprinting as far away as you can get, uh, moving out of the city, growing your own food, You know, completely rejecting the modern narrative, not watching the news, Practicing magic all day long just to get into your own world, meeting other people who are on the same wavelength, and basically taking individual responsibility for every single aspect of your life. That's the savage part. So if I was to describe magic succinctly, It would be DIY spirituality, but why stop at spirituality? If you're going to take personal responsibility and control for your own connection to the infinite, then uh, why not the finite also? Why not the rest of your life? Because... Uh, unfortunately, you're not getting any more freedom. Nobody's ever going to give you more. You have to take it. As anarchists have always said, nobody will ever give you the education you need to overthrow them. And they also won't give you the education you need to overthrow the rulers in your own head. All those voices that tell you you can't. All those voices that tell you you should be small. You should be guilty. You should be ashamed. Wilhelm Reich called this the emotional plague. It's the symptomology of people who are totally out of touch with their own physical body, who are miserable, and who are not only miserable, but feel the endless incessant need to share that misery with other people. That's why it's the emotional plague. It's not just misery, it's contagious misery. I see it on my social media all day long. Uh, where people tell me that I should feel guilty. I should feel ashamed. I should be smaller. Oh, how dare you feel powerful? Oh no, no, no. You probably know exactly what I'm talking about. The emotional plague, uh, it used to manifest as Christianity. Now it manifests as this bizarre new religion of, of, uh, self abasement that the the world is going into. Uh, not for me. Thank you. I'm a professional lifelong heretic and, uh, which so it consistently amazes me that people are think I should have certain opinions or offended are offended by opinions that I have. Hello? I'm I've been a full-time heretic for twenty years. What do you want from me? Anyways, savage witchcraft, take it or leave it. It's kind of a cool idea. It's a cool vibe. It's a it's a it's a trajectory, it's a tangential arrow out of this morass of crap. Okay. And on that note, I have an amazing podcast for you today. I really, really love this one. So I'm talking today with Frankie Gaffney, uh, who is an Irish writer. We're actually the same age. He wrote a book called Dublin Seven and is currently the host of the Dubliners Now podcast, where he interviews Dubliners, uh, usually on video in a pub. He's a super cool dude. Uh, I've known him on on Instagram for a while and. Uh, yeah, we had a really, really good conversation about uh, just everything. I'm not even going to preface this one. I mean, we talked about uh, the current political situation. We talked about Ireland. We talked about the state of the left. We talked about the old left. Uh, we talked about true Marxism versus the cartoon version propagated by Jordan Peterson. And, and uh, I, we talked about a whole lot. Uh, technocrats, Mark Zuckerberg. It's a great conversation. It's almost two hours long, and I loved every single minute of it, and you will too. Um, you can find Frankie, uh, by looking up his book, Dublin seven on Amazon. You can also find him on Patreon. If you look up Dubliners now, he's also on Instagram at Frankie.gaffney. It's Frankie with an IE. Great dude. Great conversation. Now, just very briefly, I'll be real quick. Have you noticed that I am, at least for the time being, offering my two greatest flagship courses? That's the ADAPT Initiative and the Alchemy of Chaos, two massive mega courses dedicated to taking you from zero to 60 to mastering every single area of your life, starting with the spiritual and proceeding into the physical, the financial, the economic. Uh, The career, everything. Relationships, everything. Mastering your life as a magician and an adept and learning all of the basic skills to do that uh, practice for a lifetime. I'm offering those two courses as one low-priced package at magic.me, my online school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. That's M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Which, by the way, just got a recent facelift and redesign. It looks super cool. So go to that page M-A-G-I-C-K dot me and grab the complete magic dot me intensives uh, or any other course that you want. I mean that's the cornerstone of everything and it's for one price, uh, low price. It's steeply discounted for the time being. Um, or or hop in in a, at, a, at a at a more shallow level if you like. You know, like you can dip your toes in. You can either take the plunge or dip your toes in. Anything's fine. Magic.me M-A-G-I-C-K dot M E while it's still there. Okay. I look forward to seeing you there. I look forward to seeing you in class. And in the meantime, here's Frankie Gaffney. Oh, P. S. Yes, these podcasts are going to be coming out a lot more. So make sure to stay tuned. Make stay subscribed. Okay. Thank you for listening. Here's the show. How's it going? I'm good. Very good. Thank you for being on, Frankie.
1: Yeah, I hope you'll be able to understand my accent and that your listeners will be able to understand my accent. I, I struggle with that
0: sometimes. I can understand it perfectly. And then if if my, uh, if, if I'm sure the listeners can too, but it's, it's um, so, so what's up? Like we've been like, I guess what social media friends for, for a long ass time now. Uh, and I don't even remember how that started, but um I've, I've been following the stuff that you've been doing for a long time. So you're a, you're a writer. I think we're about the same age also yeah yeah or, yeah <laughs> so, so uh yeah so maybe if you just want to introduce yourself and and tell everyone what you've been up to
1: yeah so my name is frankie gaffney i'm from dublin Um as jason said i'm a writer uh, i'm i'm on a podcast now that tara morgan is producing it's called dubliners now and um tara kind of come up with the idea of this podcast Uh, You know, it sounds like it's very Dublin centric or whatever, but actually we call it Dubliners now instead of Ireland now or whatever, because it's like bohemian. It's not necessarily people from Dublin or even from Ireland. It's just conversations with artists, writers, people like that. And it's usually, um, usually shot. Uh, video and audio on location in pubs in Dublin so to kind of capture the the Dublin pub experience and uh, broadcast it to the world from the heart of the Hibernian metropolis as as Joyce put it so um, yeah that's what I'm at now it's just you reminded me actually I I first encountered you through uh, a poet a Dublin poet called Carl Parkinson and uh, he was a big fan of yours I think he interviewed you at one stage for a magazine
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. That was a long, that was a long time ago. That was what, must have been 2014 or 2013, something like that. So, so you, you encountered me through him uh, and, and something like, something something sparked, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I suppose like Carl, um, Carl's a brilliant poet, you should check him out. And he writes kind of in the Dublin dialect, which is a very distinct way of speaking. Um, Not just the 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 accent, but also different words and different syntax and stuff like that. So um, I think it was interesting as well, Carl, being so interested in words, um, the, you know, your ideas about magic and stuff like that uh, kind of intrigued him about the power of words and, and, and sigils and stuff like that. It was just taking the idea of poetry to, to another level. So, you know, listen, I can't speak for Carl, but I think that's what interested um, him initially um, with you. And certainly then that's, it kind of grasped my attention as well.
0: Well, I think my my view on it is i I have a very uh, enchanted and disenchanted view of these things also. it's I, I'm not even so much into the arcane side of things or the the hammer horror side of things, as I call it, but I just think it's I think that there's a concept that we can both agree on that I think all writers can agree on, which is just that language creates reality. If, I don't even know if it's language shapes reality, obviously it does, but it almost creates it to a certain extent in the You know, not in terms of like the laws of physics, but we're constantly our perceptions and our, our, um, our, our pathway through life is constantly being shaped by stories that other people tell us. And I just think it's that simple. And so, so, you know, if I have a message that I'm trying to get across the idea of magic, which is obviously, obviously very um, colorful in order to get people's attention is You know, write write your own story. You know, don't let it be written for you because I think we both agree we live in a time where where our stories are being written for us by total psychos. And uh, it's a good time to remember that you have little narrative uh, agency.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I throw in a caveat there about what you were saying because while me and you agree with each other, uh, the idea that language shapes reality, I think, is is sometimes abused. I don't know um, if you've heard of the Sapper Wharf hypothesis.
0: Uh, remind me, I think so. so yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: So it's it's two American linguists, and they said that language uh, shapes your reality. But they weren't talking about, um, you know, the structure of language, which I would say is de- de- um, defines humans. Is what separates us, you know, from the animals. Really, is is language, and and uh, language in the sense that we have a syntax, so subject, verb, object, um, and you know, th- th- there's a, a mirror in narratology in that in in terms of the the, the basic building blocks of a story is a protagonist trying to get to a goal and being obstructed, you know, there's this kind of thing that mirrors sentence structure. But the Sapphire Warfare hypothesis is true to an extent. So what they said was different languages um, make you view reality uh, in different ways, which is true on a, on a certain level. But on another level, they were kind of, or it has been taken up by people as meaning that, um, you know, different worldviews are basically incompatible um, you know, and, and kind of, similar to the concept of like cultural appropriation, you know, that this is your language, that's someone else's language and they're um, completely indistinguishable. Now, you'll know, like there's no one-to-one mapping in translation. So languages don't map onto each other perfectly, but they do all have that um, structure, you know, the syntax, you know, Chomsky's universal grammar, um, is the same. So, you know, when I'm, when I'm teaching, I try to dissuade students from this view. And like, I speak Irish as well, you know, which is a minority language here. I don't speak it well, but sometimes there are phrases in the Irish language that I reach for that they don't have in English. Like the the, the one I, I miss the most, because I went to an all-Irish school, we spoke, we were supposed to speak Irish the whole time in school, but we've got out of lessons in Irish. And uh, the one I missed the most is Tāsé Cúrra Sjácaram. So the English translation would be he's annoying me, but the literal translation is he is putting in on me. So it's like it's a there's a there's a, there's a subtle difference there between he's annoying me and he's putting in on me because it's like he's interfering with me. He is, you know, intruding upon my activity rather than intruding upon my land. Uh something like that. So
0: I love that. I love that so much. And there's so many, that's like the beauty of learning other languages, too. Like a friend recently pointed out to me that. In German, for instance, the word for entertainment translates to something like, I don't remember the actual word, but it translates to something like, that which holds you down.
1: <laughs> that would tell which you down. I suppose you could look it sounds a bit kinky, but I suppose you could I mean, look at it in a positive light,
0: you know? Yeah, but well, it could be I thought it's like, well, what does that mean? Like does it mean that it 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 holds you down from losing your losing your shit? You know, it's like entertainment yeah, yeah, often yeah, does that yeah. for us, you know. It's just we're all rattling around in our own brains. Or does it hold you back from, you know, achieving actually doing work and achieving goals, you know, maybe both.
1: True. Yeah. 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 So, so that aspect, you know, there there are these little things that, um, that do get lost in translation or that certain languages have an aptitude for. But what's really amazing about um, humans, I think, is what we have in common and what's similar across all cultures and these universals and like that, Chomsky's universals. And, you know, again, the the fact that we're all um, one species of human despite living in in vastly disparate parts of the globe with different climates and all of that. um, I think that was facilitated by language and our ability to cooperate and our ability to plan and all of that sort of stuff. And I think that is universal. And I think the universality of language should be emphasized is much more than the um, discreteness of it, or, or the disparities between different languages. If you get me,
0: I do. That's a really that's a really subtle but really great point, and and one that I mean, just that's that simple point alone is something that people have forgotten. It's interesting in you know, it, it, neurolinguistic programming is always something that I've been interested in, and it's in a lot of ways a bastardization of Chomsky's research, um, you know, and New Ageified and all of that. But in NLP, there's the concept of Metafilters, which is essentially sub programs that you're running in terms of when you're confronted with information, what you how you sort the information. And so a very simple example of a Metafilter would be when somebody is presented with two sets of information to compare, do they look for differences or similarities? Mm. And if you look for differences, then you're constantly going to be in a mode of separation from Mode of separation, right? Which is as opposed to if you're looking for similarities, like you're saying, which is I I feel like, you know, up until just recently, like the last decade or two, you know, very much everyone was looking was was running off of similarity meta filters, and then all of a sudden it became about division and yeah, uh, what, yeah. what, what makes us separate, you know, and this is my, yeah, yeah. Numbers, so. yeah,
1: it's interesting. Those subtle distinctions I think are so important because, um, uh, you know, the, the one simple thing that, uh, that, um, uh, you know, I, I would kind of object to one of the simple things that I would object to, um, about how things are framed currently is the idea of privilege. And it went from discussing one person's oppression, which, you know, exists or one person's negative experiences, uh, to this accusatory thing of, of flipping it upside down and saying oh you don't suffer this rather than saying we suffer this it's you don't suffer this and um, which oftentimes um is inaccurate but strategically anyway is uh is kind of a bad move isn't it because you know um, yeah no one likes shame so so yeah those sort of things of 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 framing you know just changing the frame of of language and um, you know can be so powerful
0: yeah I remember seeing it was that's really well put I remember thinking. But this has always been my issue with how the left has slid, and and I was so, um, so much an activist for so long, and then just became increasingly, increasingly bitter and alienated. To be perfectly honest, as I think a lot of us have. But, um, you know, I mean, you even look think back to the the seventies or the eighties. I remember seeing murals of, you know, murals in. in um, you know, in Ireland, actually, of like solidarity between between the Irish and the Palestinians, for instance, or mm-hmm. solidarity of all oppressed people around the world. So, where is that idea where it's where you don't really see that as much anymore, where there's people talking to each other across cultural or linguistic divides to see themselves as uh, having a united class consciousness, if you will. You know, and yeah. and that um, that's it's not that it's lost; it's just that it is drowned out by the loud noise of of the uh, you know, as a friend called it at one point, "privilege patty cake." You know the <laughs> uh, the, the, the 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 playground game of privilege patty cake, and uh, I guess I'm in a privileged position, so I shouldn't say that. But you know, um, but if I was to step back, it, it's so much to me. Seems like you know, like in the U.S. in the '60s, we had COINTELPRO, Pro. Of course, it never and the '70s, and it never went away. Where they were infiltrating activist movements yeah. and figuring out ways to. Um, get people hooked on drugs or turn them against each other or discredit them by egging people on in, into violent acts. And um, my experience, and this is something that I wanted to ask you about from your perspective too, my, my experience very much over the last 10 years, is, you know, there was Occupy, which was, I was involved in, I was at those, I was at Occ- Occupy in LA for a couple of weeks and, and that was such a tremendous moment and such a powerful moment. And then right after Occupy, when people were essentially taking a class analysis, that's when the, the privilege checking, you know, and the woke stuff started, where all of a sudden it was just divide and conquer. Everyone was turned against each other. And I remember seeing it start a little bit at Occupy, but now it's just to such a such a degree. But
1: right? yeah, it's strange. You know, um, a lot of people dismiss you as a conspiracist or or whatever. If you mention um the nefarious activities of the intelligence agencies. Um and the thing is you should I I think we have to be be cautious about sliding into um, a conspiracist mindset or you know this presumption of suspicion on people you know sure. like looking oh you were probably you can't go in with that um, presumption of, of suspicion in, in any way and that's the same thing as going in and saying oh you're privileged you know it's it's mm. the same thing of going in and accusing somebody of of being uh, you know working for the CIA without any evidence you know but um, but the thing is I mean the CIA did fund for example abstract um, art you know as a way of diverting art from realism which I at the time was representing uh workers a lot of the time uh and and, and stuff like that hmm. um into this kind of amorphous um you know like art has always been uh what's what are these things nfcs you know the, the, you know since oh, you, it, it, it veered into it veered into this fucking you know abstract um skillless uh kind of stuff it well, has it been just the way to money
0: a, it turned into a commodity You know, it's certainly that way in in the art world here. It's just, it's ways, it's basically a way for rich people to launder money by buying
1: art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I say that I actually bought a piece of modern art that I have on my wall, but I like it. It's, um, it's, uh, uh, you can't see it there, but it's um, oxen. It's like a cave painting, but it's in neon colours. And uh, the guy that, that painted it, Paul McGuire, he's a, he's a brilliant artist. Uh, but uh, it, it reminded me of Tracy Emin, who who was an artist I dislike. I dislike, um, who, I dislike <laughs> her art. <laughs> um, I dislike her art, but I love this thing she said uh, when she exhibited her bed in the Tate And um, some you know snide critics said to her, you know, some people would say anybody could do that, and she said, yeah, but they didn't. I did it? Well, fair enough, you know. Yeah, it, it, yeah. So I, I love that, and I, I thought about that when I seen that that painting that, that I, I bought from paul mcguire and um, just the idea to do a cave painting within fluorescent colors and i thought oh yeah i ha- have to have that you know just that simple
0: idea we should talk about that that modern art thing because a lot of people still don't know that it's like uh i was actually talking about this with my dad recently and you so my understanding is that the cia largely funded modern art in the 50s because they wanted to and it's interesting that you connect it with the the realism style. My understanding is they wanted, they did it as cultural prop, uh, propaganda to undermine kind of Soviet art, which I suppose was very, very realist and focused on workers and, and that type of thing. So it was, it was to flex American superiority, but also to undermine the idea, I guess in the, presumably in the same way that you know, the U.S. exported rock and roll and like all these things to uh, around the world, television and all, you know, ad television. <laughs> decadent all, so.
1: decadent uh, culture. Yeah. 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 You you've, you've just have a lot to answer for there.
0: Uh, hey, I mean, look, I, I've been trying to, I've been trying to point this out to people here my whole life. You know?
1: so <laughs> but they also funded literary magazines. I mean, there's a, there's a great, um, uh, history book, I suppose, called Finks, F-I-N-K-S, about how they, they they funded literary and other cultural magazines and stuff like that and um the, the you know the, the nefarious effects it has and it's strange to think about how um you know they can exert their influence in these ways that seem to be, you know, I mean, why would you think, oh, you know, where? What? where's the, the global strategic interest in funding some fucking obscure literary magazine? But for some reason it works. And, you know, the thing is, like I said, people are, you know, rightfully wary of conspiracist narratives. And um, if you discount the fact that these intelligence agencies have billion dollar budgets, I mean, they're not doing nothing with that money. And, uh, I think anybody who discounts it, um, you know, is, is making a, 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 a really large strategic error if they're, they just um, don't if know they're on the left.
0: You know. Yeah, I agree. like so it's just, it, it's, this is the thing. I mean, we, we live in such a crazy moment now that you can just tell people true things and they'll call you a conspiracy theorist, right? It's not like, on Wikipedia. It's like, I did, I didn't read it off of Alex Jones. I read it in like the guardian, you know, it's like that, the modern art articles in the independence. So, yeah. so, um, or just Wikipedia, you know, it's like, it's all, you can cite things that have actually happened and people say, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. It's like, no, I it's it's I can cite the actual source. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, Come on one, that, one that I got caught out on a few times, you know, I was trying to tell people the story is that uh, there was a, a Dublin Republican, he, you know, he was in, um, there was a split in the IRA in the, in the late 60s and he was in the official IRA. And um, he ext- America tried to extradite him um, in the late 90s, I think, or the early 90s for printing uh, super dollars, allegedly printing super dollars, which were dollars printed by supposedly by North Korea that were indistinguishable from nor- normal dollars. And you know there's never been any kind of quantity given for how many of these um, entered uh, currency, but because they were printed by a state actor, they're supposed to be just completely indistinguishable. There's no way of telling them apart. Um, serial numbers, anything, you know, the ink, all of that kind of stuff. Um, so he was extradited uh, or they tried to extradite him. And then the, the case seemed to be quietly dropped. He's he's passed away now. But there's a there's a film about actually the man with the hat. But I remember trying to tell people, oh, this IRA guy was was supposed to be printed super dollars with Kim Jong-un, blah, blah, blah. And it sounds like the ravens of a lunatic, you know, <laughs> but uh, apparently it's true.
0: But that's the thing. I mean, the history is like, like uh, I'm into history. It's like, you know, it's always more, it's this is a cliche, but it's always stranger than people's conspiracy theories. And I've, I've made the point to people for years. It's like, a lot of this stuff is not secret. You can go down to the public library and read all these reports and, or just, you know, good journalistic academic books that have been written about this stuff. And there's crazier things in there than any conspiracy theory you're ever going to find on Infowars or something like that. Like conspiracy theories, I, I often think, um, like, I think they're fun but they often just serve to distract people from what's actually going on, which is usually more nefarious than whatever's in the conspiracy theory. Um, and it's, it's bizarre too, because, I, I mean, it's interesting being, you know, in the US, people are very oblivious to the rest of the world. It's not just a stereotype, unfortunately. It's mm-hmm. very true. And a lot of the world has a very negative view of America. But like in the US, particularly during the whole Trump era, the whole su- su- quote unquote supposed left has just been like bootlicking the intelligence agencies of like oh the FBI is going to save us the CIA is going to save us from Trump yeah. It's just ridiculous just ridiculous and they turn a complete blind eye to anything that's happening under the current administration because it fits their team it's really bizarre
1: yeah it's 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 strange you know and, and Ireland has has undergone this american americanization i suppose all the anglophone world um american america's culturally hegemonic um, and uh, one of the biggest markers I see is, you know, young people are getting American accents here. Uh, you, you know, and you know, little bits of American lingo entered the lexicon years ago, you know, like slang words or whatever. But now some young people are just completely indistinguishable. You would think they're American and um, talking to them. And that's how language dies as well. People kind of don't realize that that language dies generationally. So um I remember, for example, my granny, uh, she always referred to any kind of trousers as britches. And uh, you know, it comes from the English word breeches or whatever. And I knew what the word meant, but I never really used it. And then one day, I don't know, when a whim, I said to my little brother, he was about five or six, I said, uh, pull up your britches instead of pull up your trousers. And he just looked at me, he didn't know what I was talking about. And so I knew what the word meant but didn't use it. Um
0: and I said he Bridges, didn't even know what I meant. Sorry? I said British is growing, growing up. I mean, my ancestors are, uh, the, you know, Scotch-Irish immigrants. So we that's that's in the, that's in <laughs> here as well. So we said that, but I don't hear anyone yeah. say it now.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's it. I think we're getting a kind of a, a globalized, um, you know, uniculture. I call it the, the Kardashian accent. The oh. Linguistically, oh. you know, the, how uniform it is. And it's sad to see that diversity go. And again, sometimes when you talk about this, people take you up wrong. You know, I'm I'm, I'm sad to see Ireland's um, unique culture go but like immigration isn't causing it i mean immigrants are coming here and integrating in in our communities and um you know talk like me they're, they're just the same as me Um, my little brother lives down in Balbriggan, and that's a very diverse community and um the kids are all, all you know grew up together there and it's, it's not strange for them to you know kids of, of different races and and different cultures there's cultural mixing there and um, but you know they they're Irish kids you know they they, they, yeah. they talk like dublin kids you know but um i suppose the 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 wealthier classes then and um, there is this like Americanism is is just like so hegemonic that it's, it's, you know, it's, it seems to be just the way that's going to go and a real, generation real or two generations. It's just going to be, it's just going to be gone.
0: It's a real so, tragedy, yeah. I think. I mean, even also because the idea of America in general is such a fictitious idea anyways. It's so everything is so different here from state to state. And there's just every, everything is here, but the America that is portrayed And, you know, exported media and things like that is basically a creation of Hollywood. It's it's a or social media. Right. It's 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 Los Angeles culture.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, that's that's one of the funny things. A friend of mine, um, an American friend of mine, Roxanne, she added me to a to her local Facebook group. And uh, where is I think it's in like Oregon, I think. And uh, it's this local county Facebook group. Uh, but my God, you know, like the the, the community is so deprived and, and so um, you know, the 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 opiate problem and stuff like that, you know, it's it's like a community Facebook group, but every few days somebody's like posting, oh, have you seen my son or my daughter? Um, you know, that that's that's gone missing and it's so tragic. And and you know, these are it's you know, she, she's white and stuff like this, and this idea of privilege kind of occludes yeah. um, you know, these poor communities that are going through the same thing as, as poor black communities um very often. Um and I think that's sad, you know, and you know, you know, this lens as well is getting imported of of, of privilege and the, the kind of racial experience that people had in different countries, but this racialized um way of, of viewing the world is, is kind of later in history, and of course, England's first colony was Ireland, and um, you know we we still England still occupies uh-huh. or Britain still occupies part of this island, um, and yet uh, a vast swathe of our young people seem to want to adopt, uh, you know, the 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 kind of. Um, shame culture of of whiteness or something in in some weird way um when we were ourselves a colony. Ra- again, rather than solidarity with other oppressed peoples, it's it's this uh, rushing to 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 you know um expunge our guilt. And maybe it's something to do with that Catholic thing. I mean the church has had a rapid rescindance here. And it, it seems to me in a way that a lot of these narratives are very similar to the Catholic Church ideas of um guilt and shame and uh you know confessing your sins checking your privileges in another way of, of you know, confession and absolution and, and stuff like that. So
0: yeah, maybe that has something to do with it. I think, I think you're right. I mean, and it plays out very similarly here. Um, uh, I think that is absolutely... It's, it's it's completely religious in, in nature. And it's interesting. Um, my take on it is that it is, it is 100% a middle-class phenomenon. And, you know, I often... This is a very cynical read of it, but often what I see particularly with middle-class white people here um, saying, oh, you know, they're basically saying, check your privilege and, and attacking attacking other white people for, for perceived racism and all this stuff. And, and don't get me wrong, there are lots of racist people in America, like li- literally. Um, but I often read that as what they're actually saying is, as you can see by the fact that I am telling people to check their privilege... I am college educated and upwardly mobile yeah. and a member of a middle class, not like those other white people, yes. you know, the poor working class ones who all their jobs have been lost to globalization and that we've been waging a cold opium war on for 20 years because the message to like that community in Oregon, you talk about a lot in Eastern Washington, civic Northwest, also Appalachia. I mean, some of the poorest people in America are, are, are backwoods white people in Appalachia. I mean, I've been there. It's, unfathomable you never hear about it the level of poverty and desperation or the east coast and the opiate problem in america is is un, almost unbelievable how bad it is it's just it's decimated most of the country and the message from the since the clinton era has largely been we're taking your jobs here here's some oxycontin go fuck off an overdose yeah. you know and that's basically been the message and so it's kind of like as has been pointed out a lot of the grievance of poor whites in America is often expressed in the language of racism and anti-Semitism. And that's obviously wrong, right? But at the same time, it's not like they don't have grievances, legitimate grievances. It's just they're expressing them in such a way that is attacking, you know, other, other oppressed groups, right? And, and, and which is so tragic in a way.
1: Yeah, yeah, and of course the the, the ruling classes always want to wanted to to racialize these problems historically by uh, putting the onus for economic inequality on minority communities. Uh, you know, often um, the Jews are, um, you know, other people are, you know. Uh, you know, black people are coming, taking your jobs, or immigrants are coming, taking your jobs, and and this kind of thing. When when really, yeah, it's 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 capitalism, and it's yeah. there, it's, it's one small segment of of the people are taking, um, the, the the most of the pie. So, um, yeah, it's kind of playing into that narrative. It's kind of a, a applying that narrative, um, is is kind of applying a, a ruling class narrative. You know, this this kind of heavily racialized way of viewing things, rather than looking at who has, um, the wealth. There's a there's a brilliant quote. Um, I forget who it's boy, Jesus Christ. But uh, it says like you know, if some guy um, wants to lynch me, that's his problem. But if he has the power to lynch me, that's my problem. Mm-hmm. And about identifying, you know, who has the power to shape this world with all of in its what well, with all of its inequalities, with all of its depredations, with all of its um, uh, suffering and all of that. And it's a tiny minority of people. It's not you know some you know smoke on the on
0: the street. Um, it's it's a tiny minority of people. Yeah. And that's so, so obviously serves the interests of very powerful people. It's just, I mean, divide and conquer is the oldest political strategy on earth. It must be, you know, so, um, and, and it's not like there's not historical precedent for it also. I mean, I'm sure around the world, but, you know, certainly in the U S and in, in the early part of the 20th century, you had Henry Ford, you know, financing these anti-Semitic newspapers to say, Oh no, it's not me. It's not the wealthy industrialists. It's Jewish people are the problem. And then, and, And financing brown shirts to break up socialist rallies, you know, and so it's plausible deniability. Oh, it wasn't us. It was just these fascists over here and is largely responsible for the rise of Hitler. All this industrialist money going in because it was plausible deniability for these corporate industrialists, both in Germany and in the US, including Henry Ford and uh, Prescott Bush. It turns out to... Not a conspiracy theory. Also, another thing I read in The Guardian that no one believes, but I was in The Guardian like five years ago. Prescott Bush was using concentration camp labor. You know, that's our ruling class. So, yeah, Yeah. um, but it is, you know, it's amazing to me how. I don't know, I almost am tempted to kind of let people off the hook for falling for it a little bit just because this the techniques of like we started off talking about control of language, but the techniques for controlling the narrative now are so sophisticated with algorithms and AI and social media and, and you know, obviously Chomsky very famously pointed out in the 80s that, you know, manufacturing, manufacturing consent, it's not about censoring things, it's about controlling the bounds of the narrative of, and creating two false poles. And now the extent to which they can do that with, with information technology is mind-boggling.
1: So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean I mean like this is a thing you know about some conspiracist thinking like sometimes I talk to people and they can see that, you know, the media here, for example, our state broadcaster has a certain political take um, and on, on things and they view it in these kind of terms. Oh, they were told to say that. That journalist was told to say that, um, you know, that, that they're sitting around and meeting with people and, you know, having nefarious schemes. But as Chomsky pointed out, it doesn't even need to work like that. It's the simple thing of, you know, some anarchist guy or some Marxist is never going to get the job all you need is you know the the five or six editors to be ideologically on board and they'll only ever get to that position and then they'll control everything very easily and very subtly. I mean, you know, any journalist um, spouting that stuff with, with with a few exceptions that work within very tight constraints but do great work. But, um, you know, the, the overall ideological tenor of uh, the, the media machine has always been to to serve the interests of the ruling class, and, but not in that, you know, micromanaged way, just in a, in a you know, a very efficient way of running it. But as you said now, I mean, it's scary. There was a brief moment, you know, with, with, with new media um, in a number of ways, I was very excited. I remember one of them was um, in in terms of like text messages. Uh, when people started texting on those little Nokia's, people were texting in um, their local dialect. You know, so gaff is the word for house here, like G G A double F, and they would write I'm going over to you know Frankie's gaff or whatever. Um, and then when predictive spelling came in, those words weren't in the dictionary, uh, so they reverted to the fucking standard and the, you know, the, 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 you know, the Americanisms are in there and stuff like this, but they stopped using that slang and text and it was, it was being used for the first time because there was never a, a textual medium before that was um, basically free. You know, of course you had to pay for text messages, but pre text. It was cheap enough to be, you know, might as well be free uh, and informal. So letter writing was you would sit down and write a letter and you're used to writing in a certain register. Um, so it was this exciting moment when people were very creative, and I like those little um, rebuses and little things like M eight for mate, and yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, little, yeah. little, 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 yeah, you know, save an exercise like that. But they were they were interesting and funny, and uh, you know, it was vibrant, um, you know, kind of culturally vibrant. And now it's just immediately homogenized by by um, by predictive text. And similarly, like I remember as well, people start sharing videos of police brutality here, and uh, you know, we've serious issues with the with the, the police here. And uh, thankfully, they're not most of them aren't armed um like in america um but so some of them are that there has been um you know loads of cases of excessive force some of it lethal and uh, people start sharing videos. And um, I was thinking, oh, the guards are going to be, you know, on the back foot here now because they, they can be exposed. And uh, then the algorithms took over, you know, and now they just seem to get it soft blocked. I mean, there's a video of a of a, uh, a guard, that's the name for the police here, um, standing on, on this homeless guy's head and pepper spraying him. And, you know, I mean, the guy is an old homeless man that, you know, you could fend off with one arm and he's pepper spraying this guy. When the police were here were given pepper spray, we were told it was for armed assailants only and of course, now they spray on protesters and things like this, like any anything, uh-huh. um, and and you know this video was shared. But, you know, it didn't go viral in in, in the same way that, that other stuff has, um, because it seems to be the, the algorithms just stop it getting shared or, you know, maybe, you know, I mean, the, the, the thing is, as well, the social media companies have their headquarters here for tax reasons. You know, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, like yeah. In a massive segment of our economy is just bullshit. It's just money coming through here because we, we don't um, charge uh, tax to, to these massive corporations. How does
0: that, how does that affect uh, people in their day-to-day lives? Like, does that... Does that trickle down, dare I say, or does it overlap with people's actual lived experience at all?
1: Yeah, I suppose the, the problem here is like the rents have, have gone through the roof um, yeah. and, you know, the city is just getting turned into three star hotels and student accommodation. And the whole thing about Dublin being this vibrant literary city, I mean, the city of James Joyce, um, you know, now it's it's just being, um, again, homogenized and turned into this nowhere place and nothing place um, at, at breakneck speed. And there doesn't seem to be anything uh Um, we can do about it Uh, um you know so it's 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 yeah and you know that's that's one part of i suppose these companies are headquartered here and um you know you workers you know young workers um, pushing up the price of of um housing and all of that because they want to have a place to live like anybody
0: right Uh, that's certainly happening all over the u.s as well i mean it was obviously um centered within certain cities, LA, San Francisco, things like that. But now because of COVID everyone is fleeing and everyone's working remotely. So everyone's fleeing to uh, lower rent cities and essentially driving up the prices and driving out the locals, which I'm not any different, but, but, uh, you know, people are, I think rightfully quite upset about that. Um, but, uh, do you see yourself, would you say, do you, do you see yourself as like a guardian of tradition in a, in a way? And I don't mean that in the reactionary way. So please don't get me wrong, but, but, uh, uh,
1: yeah i don't know like i'm hybrid, interested like I'm, I'm interested in you know dialect and the literary her- dublins literary heritage and um, you know one of the things that uh, i um i've kind of steered clear of but i'm interested in in exploring more is um our englishness so um you know i came from a you know re- republican background and um in school, we're taught about what the Brits did to us, and you know that we're Irish, and you know we have we have this identity. And um, the the fact of the matter is, when I learned then about Irish history, um, the 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 Celts who we would see as you know the the Irish, we would see a direct lineage between us and the Celts, and we are the Celts versus the English invaders. And um, the Celts lived in a, just a completely different system. So again, they spoke the Irish language, which. I mean, 90% of us don't speak anymore. You know, uh, I don't speak it on a day-to-day basis by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, they had their own uh, legal system, uh, the Breton laws, um, which, you know, are quite famous. Uh, they had the oldest vernacular literature in Europe. Um, they had their own church. So, you know, priests married and, you know, all of this sort of stuff. And there's some evidence that the, the, the church um, actually has uh, Coptic origins rather than Roman no origins. No kidding. Yes. That's so. Wild. Yeah, um, there's a great paper on that, if anybody's interested. It's called uh, Coptic Peregrinations in Ireland. Um, but, but you know, it was a very distinct culture. And now we live under an English bicameral parliamentary system, uh, English system of landholding. We have English common law and we all speak English. Yet we all say, oh, we're the Irish, we're the, we're the Irish, you know, like this. And I'm not suggesting that we revert to, um, you know, some Arcadian uh, past because uh, another thing people forget is the Celts arrived here uh, you know, by by um, all um, you know evidence, uh, the same way that the English did on horses with swords and displaced people who had been living here for maybe ten thousand years, maybe longer, that lived here before them. And you know, the, our greatest national monuments, uh, Newgrange and these megalithic tombs, weren't built by Celtic people. We don't even know what language they spoke. I mean, their culture seems to have been obliterated. Um, so I think we need a more complex uh, relationship with our identity. Uh, you know, I don't. Believe in, and you know that's another reason that I'm not scared about fucking immigration. Um, you know whatever anybody might say about me, uh, I amn't at all because uh, if you compare immigration in Ireland uh, today to the successive waves of um, um, you know conquest that we had, uh, whether it was the English, whether it was the Vikings, or whether it was the Celts, they all arrived on horses with swords. And immigrants today are coming, you know, in families. Uh, and, and settling in a way that's, you know, not analogous at all to that, despite what the far right say. Uh, so I think we need a more complex view of our culture. I think that would benefit benefit us in lots of ways and to come to terms with our with our cultural Englishness, you know, as well.
0: That's a really interesting perspective. I, I mean, it's, it's so, it's so, it seems like it's so easy to slide into a reactionary view. I mean, particularly as, as you get older, you know, and I, I think, we're, I mean, we're talking about poetry. It's like one of my great, one of my great loves has been modernist poetry, you know, and you read people like, um, Yates to some extent, but particularly uh, Elliot and Ezra Pound, you know, very much in that in that period, you know, being fashy. And uh, Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, but, yeah. I mean yeah. Yates.
1: Yates had a meeting with the head of the Blue Shorts which was the Irish fascist movement Yates had a meeting with them to discuss being you know, the poet laureate of a, of a fascist state and um, also you know another thing people don't realise the party that's in government and that has alternated government in Ireland um, for since the inception of the state Fine Gael comes from an amalgamation of another party and the Blue Shorts so we have a, a, a party with its origins in fascism and some of its members you know being the, the, the granddaughters or grandsons of, of, of those people um, and have had them in government and I don't think um, that it has had no effect. I mean, they um, fob this off, and they talk about Sinn Fein's historical links to the IRA or um, and stuff like this as being dangerous. But I, I would um, say that Finnegale's links to the to, to blue shorts is is, is much more um, nefariously influential in Irish politics. It's that it's it's
0: so interesting to go back and look at some of that stuff. And I don't know the, poli- the political or the historical side of it uh, so much, but looking at some of the. Uh just the it it seems like it's so easy for people to kind of slide from feeling extreme nostalgia into extreme right wing views you know and i mean i mean you get like even even at the time, I mean, reading, I think both Elliot and Pound, particularly Pound talks about at one point, you know, talking, I think Elliot talks about at one point, like seeing streams of hordes of immigrants coming over sure. London Bridge, you know, and then you have Pound uh, writing lines like, uh, I think at one point he said something like, you know, the 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 hardy, unkillable infants of the very poor, you know, like lamenting was, those type yeah. of things. <laughs> so, yeah. so uh, you know, and these are very famous cases, but but it's interesting just the, the the kind of the context that you put it in, which is kind of when you look at, you know, so much of the right, the view of the right lies on uh, or relies on this fictional idea of a golden age in the past, whereas so much of the idea of the left or, or the progressive left, uh, I would say depends on an equal equally fictitious view of a utopia in the future, right? And both of these are essentially dodges from dealing with uh, things as they are now, or platforms to 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 push for for power. Uh, I won't even say radical change, perhaps, but to push for power it, by suggesting that changes can be made. Um, but uh, it, it's interesting just to hear what you're saying because like, I, I think anyone who has even a passing real acquaintance with history will tell you it's like what golden age? Yeah, <laughs> you know, it is, it's it's fictitious completely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I suppose learning that stuff um, when I studied history uh, because I, I did history at undergraduate level as well and uh, I learned so much more than the snippets and it's not like the stuff I learned at school wasn't true it was just so far away from the the meta picture or whatever of, of Irish history or history on this island even if you want to put it that way and you know one of the big things that I, I would love um, for students to be equipped with when they they um, come into the humanities is some kind of basic understanding of world history in the fullest sense of the world. And I think this can be imparted to students very efficiently i mean uh, you know marx might have done it with a sentence you know um tribalism feudalism capitalism or whatever but you could just go through the fact that we evolved from primate ancestors into you know roaming bands and then sedentary societies and develop these different types of, of culture or whatever without some kind of political um um you know framework to, to interpret that by but but it seems to be in school that we're taught history in isolation. So we learn about Napoleon and then we learn about the Greeks. And, you know, some of these young people are certainly me when I went to to university. I couldn't have told you which came first, the Egyptians or the Greeks or, you know, whatever. And what order that came in and and, and stuff like that. So um, that seems to be, again, something that, probably serves the interest of, of the ruling class that we don't have this vision of ourselves in totality or know where we came from. and um, we, we just, again, national histories. And, you know, this national history is the fiction. Also, this, like, uh, you know, over hyper-focus on the past 100 years that probably isn't as sinister and maybe has something to do with just photography. I mean, if you can put a name to a face, you know what? Well, Yeats looked like he's more interesting than, um, you know, I don't know, some some poet from the, the, the 16th century or whatever that was writing in Irish.
0: Mm. So, do you feel? I mean, this is, I suppose, a leading question. So just to be fair, but I mean, do, do you do you feel that the study of history is an endangered discipline, particularly the way that it's taught now?
1: Hmm. I don't know. I couldn't give you uh, stats on how many
0: people are doing history PhDs or whatever. Um, even at the, like the high school level not yeah. necessarily at the PhD level but because it's yeah, it down from there but, but. yeah
1: I, I couldn't really comment what I would say is that I remember when my little sister showed me her secondary school history book it seemed to be better than mine had been in terms of um, you know giving a, a a better overview rather than just like suddenly learning about the invention of crop rotation in the 19th century or whatever um, out of the blue and not knowing about the beginnings of agriculture, let's say, uh, which seems to be a more significant event than the invention of crop rotation for for human society, if you get me. So um, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to have to pass on on that one.
0: That one's really interesting for me because you know I'm obviously a as as an outsider, I guess an outsider historian. You know the the extent of my <laughs> the extent of my uh, education is a is a undergrad in English. You know, but but I've published a book on history. You know, so um, but the very much the discipline of history since the 70s and, and particularly the 80s has become post-structuralist. It's been about, uh, which I think is fascinating, um, mm. has been, you know, what what other stories are there to tell? What about women's experiences? What about the experiences of underprivileged people at, at different points in history? You know, what, what other angles are there to tell history from? And that is obviously a fascinating and critical idea, uh, no pun intended, but also at the same time, the grand narrative is being lost and it's just become another venue for the privilege witch uh, the privilege witch hunt you know so um yeah I'm, i might i might disagree you with you, there, you oh yeah Jason. okay please do
1: um yeah if that's uh, <laughs> if that's permissible i know you can yeah, yeah. you can you can tolerate um disagreement probably better than even me but uh yeah I, I would say and the reason i'm disagreeing with you basically is because you know i i've seen into say three different disciplines so history English and linguistics. And I would say its influence in English literature has been much, much worse than in history. And I think you can Wait, do
0: brilliant... The influence of linguistics?
1: No, sorry. The influence of uh, postmodernism and oh, um, okay. post-structuralism and, and that kind of stuff. So, um... <laughs> Yeah, and to focus on oppressed groups, let's say,
0: um, more generally because I caveat, do... I'm, not, I'm not like anti-postmodernism or I'm not gonna do a Jordan Peterson here because it's like oh, okay, how yeah, I was, yeah, that's yeah, how yeah, I would yeah. educated it as well. And it's so it's so freeing, liberating, and, and important postmodernism, but but uh, at the same time I see this the the self the self defeating self-contradictions, shall I say?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So so I think like say for example in history there is um you know really important uh and uh, credible and viable work you can do in terms of women's history specifically let's say and stuff like that but i think um in english literature um the the influence of of this way of thinking has um you know seems to have dominated to 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 an extent that um it kind of occludes uh, the understanding of literature so for example you know i would still consider myself a marxist um, but i find that Um, Marxist readings of literature are much less enlightening than understanding uh, in linguistics basically or understanding narratology you know these fundamentals uh, which which often aren't understood so my own work academically uh, is is on um, spelling punctuation and typography in novels basically and the reason I went into that I suppose is because I felt that critics were talking a lot of time at, of the time about these elements of literature so even say the plot book um, for example, Marxist analyses, feminist analyses, post-colonialist analyses. And they could have been talking about audio versions of the text, And we weren't looking at our object of study, which is books um, in terms of what that media fundamentally is. And it's a visual medium. So we wanted to, to bring the focus back onto what we are studying in this department. And you know, basically there are other departments for, for anthrop- anthropology or politics or whatever. Um, and that's not to say that these le- lenses uh, don't have critical utility. But, you know, I would certainly say they've been overused in in English literature in a way that I don't think they have in history or certainly not in in my experience. I haven't seen this kind of laissez-faire post-modernism mm. and francis Wien calls them the demolition merchants of reality whatever you're having yourself i mean history um departments have to work with historical documents basically that's their job and they have to do something with them whereas in the english departments i mean oh my god like one of the exercises i used to do with students and i've stopped because um i felt it was a little bit cruel maybe was um i would read them excerpts from uh I won't mention the, the the writer, but it was Judith Butler, and uh, then I would um, I would read uh, another excerpt and have them analyse that, and they would come up with interpretations of it like this. You know, this very difficult to parse um, academic language, and the second excerpt would be written by a boss. Uh, there's, a, there's a great website called elsewhere.org and there's a postmodern essay generator and if you yeah, click on that is, it'll just yeah. generate an essay and uh, you know they're basically fucking indistinguishable from um, you know uh, the, the these postmodernist uh, writers or many of these postmodernist writers are many parts of this postmodernist writing and famously the SoCal affair of course Alan SoCal submitted a nonsense um, mm-hmm. um, paper to, to to a journal and was accepted um, and, and stuff like that so I stopped doing that because I felt maybe it was like humiliating or, or something like that uh, well. um, but i think i think it was very telling the fact that nobody ever copped it you know until they were told um, but generally it was taken good humor i mean it was you know a kind of uh it's it's, it's good cracking i think people found it an enlightening experience as well but i think yeah there's been, certainly been a very um very strange and um sculptifying, uh um incursion of uh these philosophies into english departments
0: yeah. Okay. Point taken uh, and, 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 and understood, I think. And, and it, it just makes me think that, you know, obviously so much of my focus in writing and in my, my unorthodox teaching career, uh, my, my non-institutional teaching career has been religion and esoteric religion and things like that. And one thing that was pointed out to me when I was very much, you know, when I was probably 19 or 20 by by somebody who I was learning from was that in at the, at, Similar to what you said about history, where you need to rely on actual primary texts and and things like this, and you can't just make it up. Um, It's the same with the study of religion in as much as there is an actual, there is a correct answer in context for what, you know, how something was said in context by the people who said it at the time and used it in a specific way. And one of the great scourges of the study of religion that is certainly filtered down into the vast you know, pablum field of the new age is, um, people taking an English student type attitude towards it, which is just like, well, what, what does it mean to me? How does it make me feel? You know, what does it inspire in me? Which has been encouraged by, uh, probably pop, you know, pop religion people to some extent like Ewing or, or, uh, uh, Joseph Campbell and, and Alan Watts, people like this, um, will, will actually know. There actually is a correct historical answer. You can't just flub it, you know, which is true to some extent in history. Uh,
1: yeah, it's it's funny. It just reminded me of, um, uh, I, I, I don't go near Twitter anymore. I think it's a health site and uh, I'm not <laughs> yeah. on that um, platform anymore. But um, I remember a few years back, Richard Dawkins tweeted, and he said, uh, "Name one um, existing thing that a theology degree qualifies you to talk about." And uh, I just replied, "Religion." Um, right.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, it's like, <laughs> 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 right. I mean, it's like you can become a, a a priest or something. You know, it's like absolutely. And and that's that's a, that's that's a hilarious response and, and very true. You know, and um, um, yeah, we we can't go too far in desacralizing things, but at the same time, things have to be compartmentalized within their own field of study in, in a sense. And and I think the study of literature is like some of what you were saying earlier is is so much like that as well, where like you were saying, it's fascinating to take Marxist reads of things or feminist reads of things and yeah, it's, or, or, or postmodernist reads of things. And that's fascinating, you know, but at the same time, at the end of the day, you have to strive to understand what the meaning was that was being communicated by the writer by understanding the writer's cultural milieu, their background, what they were, what they are on record as pointing out, they were trying to say things like this. This stuff matters a lot, you know. So things need to be studied in in some sense, uh, in context, and that has been some sometimes lost.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and it, there's an overlap in our interests here because uh, uh, from time to time I'm, I, I teach some classes on Shakespeare, um, and uh, the, my favorite book. On um Shakespeare is a book by B. L. Joseph called Shakespeare's Eden. And um, it's a history book, but it is not organized chronologically, it's organized thematically. So there's a chapter on uh you know the the, the law of the time, there's a chapter on the social structure of the time, and there's a chapter on the astronomy uh, of the time. And uh, I think this gives students such a better understanding. Um and this you know could be viewed in terms of a more modern way of, of understanding history than you know, years ago they would have just been reading a book about the fucking shooters um, arguing amongst each other or whatever. You know, so um, y- yeah, that 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 book is, is is really brilliant. But of course, that book uh, d- discusses um a character called John D, uh, yeah. who you've written the book about, um, and that that was one of the things I suppose. Then uh, you know, I was familiar with your work uh, prior to that, but that really then grasped my attention because John D was somebody um, a history professor called Kieran Brady in, in Trinity uh, talked about with great enthusiasm. And you know, he told us, oh, he was the first 007, and this sort of stuff was so um attention grabbing. And uh what Brady said, and I'd love to hear your your thoughts on this, um Brady said he was like uh, Mark Zuckerberg or uh, um, Jack, what's your man's, Jack Dorsey, um, or, or one of these type of characters, uh, except, you know, most of the time he was just working with the wrong code. You know, he's like a, you know, this brilliant computer programmer. Um, but, you know, sometimes was, 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 was miss, um, um, you know, Was was putting his efforts into into uh, areas that weren't productive, let's say. But I suppose he, you know, or Satoshi Nakamoto or whatever the guy that's invented Bitcoin or or whatever. So, what do you think of that? um, That um, interpretation of John D.
0: Definitely Nakamoto, because he was obsessed with cryptography. He was a real genius in at, at, at advanced cryptography. But I would say um, very much like Elon Musk, right? And the reason is specifically because he was involved in all these private companies uh, for... Uh, he set up all these private companies to explore the new world. And he was so fascinated with... with he's the guy that is responsible for um, England becoming a naval power, right? He came up with all the math. He came up with the optics. He charted, you know, he personally financed a bunch of voyages and things like this and that was his real scientific uh, legacy um, the, uh, his real legacy was teaching he basically taught the whole next generation of, of scientists and mathematicians in 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 England at the time and just at his house at Mortlake you know that Tycho Bray was his ward, you know and like yeah. all, none of this you know it's very likely smart science-
1: like is so much like something uh, jk rowling would have come up with it's just oh, yeah, so no, really. it's just
0: a stereotypical name isn't it it's the ar- it's the archetype you know the wizard's castle but yeah. if it wasn't for him being essentially a great teacher the whole scientific revolution likely would have died on the vine or happened later in england which would have put england way behind the power curve um so but this was uh, you know it's in it, my comment about taking things in context was actually very much it, driven home for me by the research that I did for that book because I read all of these all the previous biographies that have been done about him and most of them took either they were way out there into woo occult right so they were only interested in that which is only part of the story or they basically took the attitude that you're saying which is well he what you know like a great you know genius but then he got lost in this crazy occult world for 10-20 years right and and this frustrated me so much because it's like well but you're you're looking at this historical phenomenon from a modern perspective. What if it actually made perfect sense in context at the time? And and I just think the most basic point I can make is you can't judge people by modern. You have to if you're going to judge people's work, you have to judge it from the criteria they were the the cultural context they were working from at the time. And you think that this is something that postmodernism would make perfectly clear um, that you know he's working in a different episteme. Um, And if you look at all that stuff in context in the same way that you were talking about Shakespeare, you need need to understand the Elizabethan worldview, which is perfectly the Elizabethan worldview is perfectly internally logically coherent and involves things like angels and the scientific method side by side, which influences so much of Shakespeare's work in the same way as it did John Dee's. So you can't look at it and dismiss him because you're viewing it from modern eyes. It's like from the from the if you take him as a phenomenon of the time, it all makes perfect sense. But nobody wants to, nobody, it's like nobody wants to do the, it's like you were saying about language. Nobody wants to see the similarities and want to see the differences. And nobody wants to take on the different mental framework or mental language uh, to understand somebody on their own terms, which I think is a great marker of respect for other human beings, whether it's historically or now. I think if we want to understand people, we have to understand the world they live in. We have to understand their language, their cultural background, their, uh, their food, their culture, and understand that, yes, it's different from ours, but there's a lot to learn from it. And we need to understand that before we just pass judgment on somebody.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's so funny that we're both sitting here slating postmodernism, but a lot of people would say that that's one of the corners well, yeah. of, of postmodernism is this cultural relativism. And, you know, of course, you know, this is the thing, I suppose. I'm, I'm you know, uh, um, uh, hot-headed and seeking the the bubble reputation even in the canon's mouth, as Shakespeare might have put it. But uh uh, you know, I, I can steam in too much and, and and throw the baby out with the bat water to to use that old cliche um with with these ideas and and not engage with them. Um, you know, it's it's very interesting also something else you said because I wasn't aware of uh of John Dee's influence in, in, in that respect. And that is um in relation to uh, companies that were set up to explore the new world, because, um, that, uh, you know, the, the, the joint stock companies, uh, and you know, all this, but the, the joint stock companies were set up as financial instruments, uh, to, um, disperse risk. So because
0: I don't know that no,
1: Yeah. So, so ships could get lost totally. So you might lose 10% of your, you know, your, your wheat crop or 20% or have a bad year or whatever, but with a ship, it could hit rocks and it was gone, every penny you had. So they said, right, I'll tell you what, we buy 10 ships. We each take a 110 share in them. And that way, if three ships get lost or whatever, um, you know, so so this idea of these financial instruments, the joint stock companies, came around in Elizabethan, England. At that time, there was the Levant Company um, that went to the Mediterranean, uh, the Muscovy Company that went to Russia.
0: Yeah, that was the was D. Sorry? Muscovy Company was D. He was one of the principals in that.
1: Right, right. I didn't know that. There you go. Yeah, and you know Shakespeare talks about frozen Muscovites, and um, you know the the ambassadors from from Russia coming in at this time and wearing big furs, and you know what these like 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 aliens, uh, and you know they're, they're being surprised that they were they were Christians and and stuff like this. Um, so so again, the influence of the stock exchange in London, uh, coming from 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 this era, you know, really blossoming at, at that time and blowing up. I mean, you know, people talk about the You know, we're saying that there's no golden age, and of course the Elizabethan era was terribly cruel. And um, it's what really what uh, there's a brilliant book by Susan Brigden called um, New Worlds, Lost Worlds. And people often talk about the ex- exploration of the Elizabethan era. But what's less talked about is how that was really when uh, the Celtic world was, uh, you know, obliterated more or less. And that was the, the definitive uh, defeat of the Celtic world. And, and, um, and, was, and was the, was
0: the beginning that of wiping out the Native Americans. In the in, in Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, yeah, that that the, the influence of 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 uh, the the of D in that respect is you know it's it's unfathomable, really. You know what he had his fingers in and the, his his influence on on our world today. But of course, you've been banging that room for
0: for much yeah. longer than I have. Well, I mean, just that period of time too. It's just everything. It's it's it was a pivotal point where the world history shifted, and so you know, in a sense, everyone who was involved in Shakespeare, Elizabeth, you know, all these people, Cecil. Um, you know, we're all there. And yeah, but I, I suppose any time in history is like that also, um, if you just look close enough. And that for me is one of the most fascinating things about history where it becomes holographic, uh, where you can draw out threads that attach to everything else in history from any, <laughs> any given time, right? And this is what, like what you were saying, where it's like people don't have a sense of their own history. Well, it's like, well, what could be more tragic? Because if you don't know your history, uh, for instance, like in the U.S., nobody even knows who they're past their grandparents who they were or where they came from and they're proud of it and and that shocks me always and and everyone has a sense of oh we're, well we're just americans now or, or as you might say like car- kardashified right yeah. it's, it's, it's so it's it's a it's a great tragedy it's if you don't know i mean it's a cliche but if you don't know where you've come from how can you know where you're going and it's such to know your your own past your own history that you're from a group of people that all had Dreams and aspirations that led to you being here, and a shared story, and a, and even that there is a shared myth. Um, that what you know that that's a true source of power for people. And and now what I see happening is, you know, ironically, as there's so much discussion of diversity, what I see happening now is that everyone is being pushed into a monoculture. That is just well. Yeah. We're we're browsing Reddit. We're buying stuff off Amazon. You know, and, that's
1: that's a that's yeah. a brilliant point. You know, you you've put it precisely as as I've put it before. You know, just at this time when we're discussing diversity, where you know there's this you know uniformity and monocultural um, uh, you know hegemony um, on an unprecedented scale. And it's it's funny when 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 Trump um, you know uh, was defeated. Uh, during that period when they when they banned Trump off the social media platforms and all of that, I was thinking, um, you know, maybe Jack Dorsey and, and Mark Zuckerberg have more power than any human has ever had in the history of humanity. And that just went unnoticed. You know, it just it was just uncommented on. Everybody right. is like orange man bad. You know, and again, right. there's there's more to the world, you know, than than America. And of course Trump, you know, is a grotesque villain and all of that. You know, I'm not this isn't a defense of, of Trump, but um where is power? You know, where is right. power now? And and you know, again, he, he seemed to be like the 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 Matador's flag. You know, where's the Matador?
0: Right, that that for me was the definitive moment of that whole, whatever the whole election era it was. That flex, it was just that so definitively demonstrated where power is, yeah. and you don't have to be an apologist for Trump to say the president of the United States was just banned off of, <laughs> <laughs> take it, had his has his free speech rights taken. Uh, and you know, and in, in the U S the, the American right does this ridiculous argument where they say that, well, these are private companies, so they're, they, they can regulate speech. It's like, well, okay. I understand that to a certain extent, fair enough in their terms of service and all that. But the other thing is you have to understand a lot of these companies were set up with government money in the first place, particularly Google was set up with NSA money. I don't know about Facebook and Twitter, but you know, there was world bank involvement with with Facebook, uh, and they're given government money and they're essentially very much, uh, in the same, in the same position as the the phone companies were in the early part of the 20th century, where if you don't, if you're banned from social media, you simply can't communicate. You just can't, you can, you can talk, you can go down to the public park and talk on a soapbox, but yeah. that's about it. Right. You know, it's yeah. like your ability yeah. to speak is, is highly limited. And I think that for that reason, you know, obviously, this is one of the great, time, you know, issues of our era, and I agree with you. I think that you know, Bezos and Zuckerberg are um, uh, massively. That that just demonstrates where the power lays. Uh, I think that people like Bezos are far more powerful, even than that, because they now, now control the supply chains and manufacturing. Um, but uh, and then we got Bill Gates running around trying to block the sun out, so. <laughs> We got that going on, and it's just ridiculous. How did these, you know, how did these psychopaths become? And I don't necessarily. Well, I think probably Bill Gates is a psychopath, but uh, you know, Bezos. You know, uh, I don't know. You know, Mark Zuckerberg, in particular, recently has struck me as actually like remarkably reasonable individual for all considered (laughs) for his position. But Dorsey is bizarre. Uh, yeah,
1: well it's funny yeah. <laughs> Facebook has become the 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 nice place now uh, where people go for you know, if a, a friend of mine said it was like um I should probably name check him. Uh, his name is Dr. Miller. M-I-L-L-A-R. He's not a doctor. He's a, a singer songwriter. He's very well renowned um, in Ireland, uh, but but little known outside. Um, so Dr. Miller is his name. And uh, he said Facebook now is like the old man pub that used to be cool in the 70s. And now it's all these old guys. And you go in, you can say what you want. Nobody fucking notices. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. Whereas it used to be really, oh, you know, um, uptight and stuff like that. Yeah. But, but it was never
0: as uptight as Twitter though. I, I, and that's no, why no. I was always on Facebook. Instead of Twitter. And now now I pirate Instagram, but that's become much more tired now. Yeah,
1: I'd like to, I'd like to uh remake Fight Club and at the end, instead of the credit card companies, they blow up fucking Twitter headquarters, you know, instead. <laughs> but um it's it's interesting what you said about the right making this argument about um you know their private companies and stuff like that. Here a lot of the left was making that argument. Now I should say, you know, that this, you know, it's it's hard to define the left or whatever and the 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 um difference in liberalism and the left uh you know as I understand it's been kind of occluded, but it was amazing to see um people going to bat for private companies rights to 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 um control speech and of course these awful people uh, got banned but um some left-wing sites got banned. Kurdish sites, uh, for example, the the Kurdish um, struggle for national self-determination, let's say, um, in in Kurdistan. And a lot of their um, websites got banned around the same time or or social media pages. Um, So, yeah, I agree with you totally that these websites, uh, because... Uh, By the nature of the technology, one website becomes hegemonic in each niche, let's say. So Instagram for pictures, Facebook for longer text, Twitter for for shorter um, text and links and stuff like that. And, you know, these are much more analogous to being prohibited from using a technology than from being prohibited uh, to to um you know speak in a, in a public square or or, or or something like or you know speaking in 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 one place or whatever it is you know um so i think it's yeah it's, it's 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 astounding how power has become so concentrated with such little oversight and you know you would have to wonder to what extent did trump serve the 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 you know the new uh, global elite like you said bezos and and these characters in just being uh, a lightning rod for um, criticism uh, and uh, taking the oil off them and allowing them to, to, to do what they want with impunity and usher in Sorry. this technocracy that we live under now.
0: Well, one, one of the points I always make about, well, not always, but I've been making more frequently recently about conspiracy thinking, quote unquote, um, which is shocking me that it's become a bad word. It's like because, you know, when I was growing up, it's like conspiracy theories were fun. It was like an enjoyable, activity <laughs> here, you know, it's like you, you get high and talk about like, well, what if, you know, and and, yeah. and now it's just become this, this uh, very different context. But, and, and I made the point recently on Instagram, it's like, everyone's like attacking quote unquote conspiracy theorists. Well, it's like, well, what's what, what world are you proposing a world where you have to be licensed to critique power or a license where you're like, yes, of course. Of course, people don't understand all the intricacies, intricacies of how global power work and they come up with stories to patch the holes. What do you expect them to be? Like, you know, like PhDs in what global finance, all you know, yeah. otherwise they can't speak. Otherwise, they're not allowed to even guess what people in power are doing, which is ridiculous. And, and so every time people say, Well, you're a conspiracy theorist, it's like, well, that's kind of my response now. It's like, oh, I need to be licensed to like even guess at what powerful people are doing in my name and to me. So um, But one of the the meta points that I've been trying to make about some quote-unquote conspiracy theories is is just making the differentiation between um, intention to... A Ca- causative intention and reactive intention meaning like let's take for example 9-11 okay was there a conspiracy to do 9-11 i.e. was it planned in advance did George Bush rub his hands together and did it, you know decide that you know he was going to tell people that jet fuel mil- jet fuel melts steel beams and all this um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Like um, maybe but probably not honestly like I'm not I'm actually not a 9-11 conspiracy theorist it's like let's say that it, it was completely as described right like the actual event is exactly as it was described by the the mainstream narrative there's no let's i'm not necessarily saying this is the case but let's just say for sake of argument there's no discrepancy between the public story and what actually happened i'm totally like i think that's probably likely to some extent but does that now mean that the event was not used in nefarious ways obviously not obviously the the event Absolutely. of nine eleven was used to justify the invasion of uh, the pre-existing plan to invade the middle east to invade Absolutely. Afghanistan Absolutely. and then Iraq it, uh, the what we know and the one of the things that always infuriated me about 9-11 truthers was look we know for a fact it's proven that they made up weapons of mass destruction and instead of harping on that you guys are all like trying to prove a different conspiracy. We know for a fact that they lied to us intentionally to invade Iraq. Why aren't you all focused on that instead of like analyzing videos of 9-11? Like, what is it really, in, in the words of Hillary Clinton, what difference does it make? You know, like, yeah, like yeah. that's a terrible uh, thing to say, But but just in the sense that if you want to do a critique of power or it's like COVID, for instance, right? Like, let's say that it's all as said, right? But at the same time, you can't say that it hasn't been used to consolidate power globally in utterly nefarious ways. Right. The, 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 you know, as they say, as Kissinger said, you know, never, uh, what was it? Uh, you know, never a disaster. You never let a disaster go to waste. Right. And, yeah. and, and, but that whole train of thinking the what, you know, for instance, let's say with COVID, it's like the whole, you know how is covid being used to lock down the world into a global control grid well that whole train of thinking can just be derailed by saying well you're a conspiracy theorist like what do you not believe covid's real like and and when you couple that with the fact that all these tech companies are able to manipulate the discourse with algorithm and literally google and facebook and and uh, youtube are just censoring across the board anything that is even slightly critical of of the narrative that's being pushed that's a very um and then you coupled that with the social pressure of people policing each other's thinking, which is the most nefarious censorship of all at Insidious, where people are now um, trained to uh, thought police each other. That's the most. And then, and then even more nefarious than that is the fact that now people self censor. Uh, in reaction to that. So you combine that with that. And then you combine it with the fact that we know for a fact all, that corporations and, and state actors all have um, uh, either trained groups of, of, of uh, uh, shills, right? You know, uh, writing, or they have software to create bots to manipulate discourse by creating fake comments. I get them all, I get them all day long on my Instagram or somebody will be saying like, well, yeah, but you're dumb. And then I look and they've got like, you know, no picture zero followers you know and they're following 30 people that's all day long it happens on reddit i've tried to break journalistic stories on reddit and successfully ultimately but they're always uh, held back by bot software that tries to downvote them and it, i can see it happen in real time
1: it's, it's so. funny um I, I just remembered something that i forgot to mention earlier about the uh, transfer of power to these technocrats or whatever you want to call them, I don't know. But uh, there was an incident a few years back where our Taoiseach, and our Taoiseach is our Prime Minister, and um, uh, the Kenny at the time, and he was meeting Mark Zuckerberg. And he flew over to meet Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg didn't fly over here. And Ender Kenny was bragging about this. Oh, you know, he got to meet Mark Zuckerberg. And if anything, it's such a clear indication that, you know, a head of state is, you know, flying over and then bragging about getting to meet this guy. And yet we can't seem to grasp the idea that these um, are uh, the most powerful. Yeah, but certainly, like, I think, um, you know, this this fact seems to have been totally occluded uh, by distractions. And it's it's interesting. Here we have, like, a nascent... Um, like, I don't know, you know, people call them fascist people, you know, alt-right, whatever, but we've got a weird groupings of, um, you know, anti-immigrant, uh, you know, supposedly nationalist uh, groups, yet they're, for example, collaborating with um, loyalist groups, which are, you know, English, pro-English groups and, and stuff like this. And It's, you know, these kind of conspiracists constantly accuse everybody of being controlled opposition. So they accuse all the left of being controlled opposition. And there's a reason for that, because I think a large segment of the left has become subservient to the ngo industrial complex as i call it and to the to the um uh the the um interests of the professional managerial class rather than the interests of the working class and um, you know people you know all of these people are getting paid um to 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 you know do their activism or write their um journals and write their academic papers yeah. and there's no um you know self criticism there of their role in power but but th- these groups that are that are critiquing that um, are the definition of controlled opposition because they stigmatise um, very effectively um, any criticism of uh, technocracy or how you know criticism of censorship, for example, or anti-corruption in our police force by associating those ideas with far-right ideas like racism, like anti-immigration sentiment, um, or or even being critical of um, immigration as a tool to. Uh, exploit labor to move labor around the world like pawns yep. in, a, in in this uh, chess game of capital. And um, you know, if, if you critique that, it's very hard to distinguish yourself from somebody opposing immigration on a on a, on yeah, a racial forget basis.
0: That even Bernie Sanders used to make that critique. Uh, he backpedaled on that, but yeah, I, I'm curious. Uh, what extent do you think that the alt right phenomenon is basically astroturfed?
1: Uh, well, that's an Americanism I'm not familiar oh, thankfully not for with. so American hegemony is not as bad as we
0: thought. okay about. good uh, <laughs> astroturfing is like um, like fake grass like when you put plastic right. grass uh, yeah. it's a term that means when you create what appears to be a public pressure group but it's just essentially set up by it's fake like you set up like yeah. a fake public interest group like,
1: uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who knows? You know, I mean, like they, they 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 seem to be well funded here, and the money's coming from somewhere, and it seems all you know. Like I said, it could, you know, it could be the intelligence agencies, and um, there is uh, precedence for intelligence agencies funding opposing groups and uh, using that to to um, to, to, uh, to to divide and conquer. But I, I think it is dangerous. You know, I don't think that there um, some threat to, to just be ignored or whatever. You know, it, it's, it's interesting as well. And in an Irish context, when we talk about the intelligence agencies and the troubles here, Um, you know, the, the role of the intelligence agencies is just, you know, it's been proven now beyond any um, doubt uh, in recruiting agents, recruiting informers. And um, there was, you know, a the better, main
0: better, guy. British intelligence. Yeah, 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 like yeah. Recruiting, British recruiting intelligence and that type of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. So there, there was a, an operative called Stakeknife. Um, you know, he's probably the most famous and he was a longstanding member of the IRA. But what he was tasked with within the IRA, he was the head of the IRA's internal security. So he was the head of finding informers within the IRA. And he himself was not an informer working for British intelligence. And um, by all accounts, he executed um, people who weren't informers uh, and accused them of, of being informers. And uh, it's so interesting. Like interesting parallel there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, 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 it, it's, a murky, murky world, you know, politics. And, and
0: economy. I remember reading, I think this must've been six, seven years ago. I remember reading, you you probably saw this. Uh, there was a story that came out that uh, British intelligence in the seventies and eighties has had embedded informers in animal rights groups or environment, excuse me, environmental activist groups. Well, mm. there's a lot of overlap there obviously, but like a uh, Earth first type groups. And there was uh, a British agent that was so, uh, deeply embedded uh no pun intended that uh he had actually had he had had children and a family with one of the main organizers of this group like he was married into it you know and he was an informer and his own wife didn't know that he was a an informer like that it's like how philip k dick can you get it's like so when yeah you, you can't trust the person you're married to i mean like yeah but, and when when we see things like this from history and then people are just dismissive of claims of intelligence yeah. activity or that that uh, or they or they bootlick and suck up to intelligence agencies it's like what planet are you on yeah. You know, yeah, you it's insane.
1: To... There's a campaign for, you know, those women who, who were involved with um, those. I, you know, I think some of them were were, were met police as well, just um, in, in the UK where they um, were in uh, animal rights, hunt saboteur groups and, you know, various kind of groups that will be associated with the left. I, I do suppose, though, you know, again, like these conspiracies, you know, are true. They're, these are just facts, you know. Conspiracy but,
0: means like at least two people coming up with a plan to get power. It's yeah, like, exactly, well, exactly. That's, that's human act, all human activity, you know. It's like <laughs> but
1: I suppose it's important as well not to get extra, uh, distracted by the micro level of, you know, what is your understanding or knowledge of this um, you know, going to to solve. You're not going to be able to figure out the intricacies of of this world. And to understand it at the macro level, I mean, um, you know, these uh, iniquities and these depredations and these actions, you know, all of these conspiracies can be understood in terms of protecting the interests of the elite in, in, in this broad sense, um, rather than um you know, you don't need, I suppose, this this micro level of of involvement in it. Maybe I'm not making myself clear there.
0: Well, say more, say more.
1: Um yeah, I suppose like the, the behavior of the elites uh, is them protecting their interest, you know, at, at a fundamental level. So what's going on is a, a simple thing of them protecting their property and their 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 wealth and their power. Um, and that that explains it rather than, for example, say um, Trump was going to expose all of these other powerful people. He's the powerful good guy and they were the powerful bad guys. You know, really to, where, where power is, is where it is and it's protecting itself. Yeah, and these, you know, intricate schemes that are, you know, uh, overwhelming, you know, these are the the scheme. What I'm saying is the schemes are at the micro level and power is at the, the macro level. Does that make more sense?
0: That definitely makes sense. And it, and it just calls to mind, I think, you know, you're talking about the technocrats and I think, that, yes, you know, that is the best way, you know, that's as good a word of it, uh, as any for them. And, you know, I think one of the real the real story as it were of the last several decades is the rise of the technocrat class to power and the question there is is that actually a new is that actually a new power group does it serve the old power interests what is the relation there and i i so, for instance, when I was a teenager, when I was nineteen, I worked at a beach club in on in La Jolla in San Diego, actually where Tucker Carlson grew up, and uh, <laughs> uh, uh, it, it's a very famous beach club uh, that was also featured in the movie Traffic, uh, with, where Catherine Zeta Jones was was at. But um, this was a beach club for capital R rich people. I mean, like you had to spend $40,000 just to get on the waiting list with no guarantee right. that you would be allowed to. And and so Vanderbilts were there and I, I did try it on with a um, uh, uh, heiress of the, uh, um, so I was 19. I, she was, I think at 19 or perhaps 20, I think older than me. Uh, so I did try it on because she was quite fetching, but didn't get anywhere because I was a low leap cabana boy. I came out in like little short shorts and just gave towels to rich people all day long. That was my job. And I made $8 an hour minimum wage. Right. And, um, and these people were all old money, like, you know, all old U S and European money. There's a lot of European people there and like to the point where they all looked inbred, you know, like (laughs) eyes a little too close together, like teeth looking a little too Kennedy. And, um, they literally it was just such a bizarre life experience for me because i would go there every day early in the morning to set up and you know set out beach chairs for people and and uh, uh umbrellas and then these people would kind of wake up go out sit on their chairs and stare out into the ocean all day long while having drinks brought to them and just drink all day long and some of them would do crosswords as before sudoku so some would do crosswords but that was about it and it was like they were just dead they were just they they didn't They weren't reading. They weren't talking to each other. They were not engaging in business. They were just kind of staring out into the ocean. And and I never was, I was never tipped once. You know, these are people uh, with more money than God the entire summer. They didn't even see me as human. And, And this was such a fascinating experience for me, except there was one individual, one time I got tipped. Okay. Well, I take it back. There were two times I was tipped. One was a guy who thought it would be hilarious if he would, if he could throw money off a balcony while smoking a cigar to see if I would go pick it up. Right. Which I did because I wanted to buy the new Blur album at the time. (laughs) (laughs) And I had no shame. (laughs) But, um, uh, the, uh, but the other time was I was, I was the only time anyone's ever ever, saw me as a human and was nice to me and tipped me was a, a tech guy who had, and this was, this must've been 2000 or 2001. It was pre nine 11, right? So yeah. no, it must've been summer of 2000 and or summer, no, summer must've been summer of 2001. So pre nine 11. And uh, he, um, he gave me a tip and, and said something nice to me at whatever it was at the time, but obviously communicated that he saw me as a person and he was, and it was interesting because I had noticed at the time that he was, a tech guy who had made his money and he himself was clearly not seen as human by the other people. Yeah. They were all born into money. And and so I noticed even at the time there was this antipathy of like this class friction between these new money people and the old money. I mean, how many books have been written about that type of thing, but, um, but now it's so clear that the tech class has become the dominant, uh, power in the world, other uh, larger than the nation state. And so my question is always, you know, like, even if you look at, for instance, the, the history of companies like Facebook, you see, like, you look at Sheryl Sandberg and, and who's, I think the CTO of Facebook and you see that, you know, she was educated, all her mentors were like World Bank people and, you know, there was funding from World Bank and, and all of this stuff. And so all the same power networks are woven around, or you look at Google was funded in part by the NSA. So you can see all the same power networks are woven around with these things. But the question to me really is, you know, are we seeing a new power elite in the world uh that is made up of the Bezoses and Zuckerbergs and, and Dorseys and things like that? And to a certain extent, like yes, we clearly are. But my question is, well, to what extent are they an extension of or in bed with, or perhaps in opposition to the previous power elite? I mean, we see the monarchy may not survive the queen, people are saying. Mm. So Uh, It's an open question.
1: Yeah, I suppose uh, you know. There's that old uh, cliche of the, the rise of the middle classes, and it's about when did the middle classes rise? And I'm like, when are they going to start falling? You know, they've been rising forever. Uh, and similarly, as well, the decay in aristocracy and uh, capitalism. I mean, this is the trope in you know Jane Austen type novels of um, you know the, the nouveau rich industrialist uh, trying to get with um, someone who's um, seen as classier but has less money. Uh, I mean, um, Winston Churchill. I was uh, an American heiress um, or whatever, uh, and stuff like that, and uh, yeah, so th- those things are, are 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 there. So I suppose maybe it's better, like you said, extension. I think is is the, is the, the the best word to describe it. And if we depersonalize, and I think that is, you know, we're so prone as humans to um, narrativeize and personalize. Um, things and look if we just get rid of these bad people you know if we yeah. just get rid of yeah. Trump you know things yeah. are going to get better if we just get rid of this guy and we're constantly in the cycle of doing that and um, it's you know change the system not the suits uh, would be you know, if you don't was to come up with a political slogan uh, that alliterates good. you know change the system not the suits yeah but, um, it, there, there's some truth in that and uh, yeah so uh, yeah I, I do think it is better to view it in terms of an extension of capital basically um, that it is you know reaching its fingers out when it has been doing so for for so much longer and if you look at this even in, in, in an Irish um, context so you know it seems to be that you know the hunter-gatherers on this island as far back as, as 30,000 years ago maybe they're saying now or whatever Um, you know then this you know um, society that seems to have been matriarchal that built the Neolithic monuments um, uh, from the shape of the monuments or the symbolism of the monuments, it seems possible maybe that they were matriarchal. And then the the Celtic um, tribal society that was patriarchal and that had territory, but it was held in common the tribe and also uh, for example succession was um called it was the derb fitness of a true kin and um, it was all eligible males of a single grandfather it wasn't just the son it went to the son you know it was it was this much wider concept of, of family and that's all seems to be you know it, it, history you could just look at it as a process of um atomization of the 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 the, the the commune into the individual and of property in from, um, you know, collective ownership into, you know, much more concentrated forms of ownership. And yeah, so in, in those terms, certainly, you know, in, in, seeing it as an extension makes much more sense than getting hung up on, oh, this person has different kind of manners than this person yeah. or, or whatever, which is what we're so prone
0: to, to, to do. Right. I mean, I think one, one point that I, I, I think about quite a lot is that people obviously critiquing capital and critiquing capitalism is, is such a, such a popular activity these days, but often what's lost is Marx's original Marx's original definition of capital, which is, and people totally miss this, right. Which is, you know, capital, you know, capital is not money or how much you, how much money you have. It's, 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 it's owning a factory, right? Like capital is owning the means of production and that idea I would say this it's like you know like actually that idea of Marxism, and Marx's idea of seize the means of production has been more um helpful for me in my life than almost anything like that simply that idea I I got that when I when I studied marxism and I've never been a marxist like I'm not like into yeah. marxism you know but the dude had very very good points and and as an outside you know I, somewhat the irony is that you know he he his points are his critique of capitalism almost just simply suggests ways to do capitalism better. And I'm not saying that in like a woke capital way. What I mean by that is, is um well, let me backpedal because that, that, that gets me off on it, it, it. too, too, too thin of a branch. But um my, my, as you would imagine for somebody like me, my fundamental, issue with marxism when as i was studying it was that it was a materialist it was still a materialist desacralized view of the world right is it is it much like capitalism it sees the world in economic terms now i don't see the world in economic terms i see the the economic strata of the world in economic terms but i don't believe in historical materialism for instance and i don't um think that, uh, uh, you know, I don't take a mouse view that religion is the opiate of the masses. I think that that stuff is real, is real and important, but I, uh, somebody like me would think that, right. So I don't think that everyone necessarily should share the same view, but, um, uh, you know, I have a different take on, you know, I'm, I'm a specialist in certain ways. So, but, you know, Marx's point of seize the means of production that went off like a light bulb in my brain when I was 19, not, not in terms of, not in terms of, um, (laughs) <laughs> not in terms of, oh, we need to revolt and take over the factory as a collective, but just like, um, very much in the Jello Biafra sense of like, you know, don't fight the media, be the media, mm. you know? So, so at that time, you know, having your own website and your own publishing platform and things like that was still a revolutionary idea, but I was always from that age of the, of the viewpoint. It's like, no, you have to own, what it is that you're doing? Don't be working for somebody else. Like own what it is that you're doing, and so that you have total control. And just that idea has been so powerful for me. And and you know, I probably perverted it, but no, no, not, not now, at all. I, you know, so and I think that it's such a liberatory concept. But um, but but we apply that to now. It's like the other thing about Marxism. It's like, well, we don't live in the an industrial revolution world anymore. And 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 to a certain extent, I think that, and I could probably be very rightly critiqued for this view in from many angles but I think that to some extent we can't, um, well, this is probably a very harsh idea, but the, 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 one of the fundamental assumptions of, of Marxism, which was correct at the time in context is that labor, the labor is important to capital. Well, unfortunately now labor is not important to capital, not in the same way, because almost, because almost, uh, Almost everything can now be done with software, with algorithms, with artificial intelligence, and they know that. And I think that the majority of these technocrats see uh, are starting to see humanity as in the same way that the monarchs always did, or the monarchies always saw to some extent people as cattle on their land. You know, but I think the technocrats very much view the masses of humanity as as um, useless uh, to be optimized out, or you know, as the Nazis said, useless eaters. And uh, that that, I think is the the real trajectory of what's going on. And that I see behind things like, uh, you know, mandatory injections and it's, you know, I don't want to be too conspiratorial, but you know, the world is not going in a happy, fun trajectory, particularly because this is being run by technocrats like Bill Gates. So, and I just, I just, assume like, that's where my mind goes with people like them. I I don't believe for a second that they want, they're actually great humanitarians, not for a second.
1: Yeah, of course. I want to pick up on a a, a few threads you brought up there. So one of the things as well, you know, Marx is is just so misunderstood and just becoming more and more misunderstood every day, both by the left and the right, I I find. But one of the things you were were pointing out was um, Marx's view of capitalism is not what... um, either Jordan Peterson makes it out to be or, yeah. you know, what segments of the left that just... I love that he um, never it read, in, like,
0: when, he, when he debated Ziz- uh, Zizek, he, he, he let slip that he never even read the Communist Manifesto. Uh, Sorry, go ahead.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we, we might pick up that thread uh, as well because I have some some things to say about that. But, um, you know, Marx saw capital as, and capitalism as a necessary... Um, phase of human history and he saw capital as liberating the productive forces and and necessary and um, capitalism was something that would create uh, a a class of people the proletariat that would outnumber the, the 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 upper class, or whatever, but you know those things that that you're talking about, um, you know, could be viewed very much so in Marxist terms in terms of the increasing concentration of capital, and um, you know, workers becoming less important because workers are becoming more productive because of technological advances, and you know, this is you know precisely in line with 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 Marxist thought, um, you know of the of of of, of the you know. Um, more refined Marxist thought maybe than what is always you know p- put out there And it, what's interesting is as well you know you mentioned Pearson I mean Pearson is the most influential commentator on Marx today and he's never read Marx I mean <laughs> and he says that um, Marx is uh, just talks about oppression and oppressed groups and talks about um, you, know, you know this kind of stuff Marx didn't think that the proletariat were the most oppressed people or um, the most the, the nicest people or the best people or whatever, you know. He was a snob who married, a, a you know, an aristocrat and was very proud of that, that fact. Um, you know, Marx thought that the, the proletariat were the majority of people and because of that fact, and this is something the left get, you know, current left get very wrong, uh, to think that class is just another axis of oppression or whatever. Marx viewed um, the, the proletariat as liberatory because they were the majority, not because they were the most oppressed, not because they, they had been wronged historically or whatever, um, because technological advances created this you know mass of people um who, who would then um you know overthrow the, the ruling class but what what, what, what what i'm convinced of um in marx's work um and you know i, I interviewed for my podcast a, a kind of a, a free market uh, economist um, professor frank barry and uh, frank barry kind of conceded about marx as well that and um, the idea that history is best understood in stages defined by changes in the in technology um, you know is a very powerful idea and you know as you said we can see this happening again the technology changes and and power changes and society changes on the basis of of that and i think if you you look at history in that way it's so much more powerful than talking about french history or irish history or napoleon or whatever um and so peterson never talks about that stuff you know i don't know if he even knows what dialectical materialism is or historical materialism is and to refute it and i think that's a great a great tragedy just in, in, in you know whether you agree with Marxism or what do you don't. Um the, the fact that it's just so widely not understood. And even yeah. to hear you say historical materialism is a relief, uh, you know, c- c- compared to, to what yeah. most people talk about these days.
0: Jordan Peterson is such such an intellectual rodeo clown to some extent. You know, he I mean, I i have been probably too obsessively harsh about uh, Jordan Peterson in the past. It's easy to
1: dunk on him as well. You know, I have no interest really in sitting here slagging him off because so many people do it in this kind of... Like one of the things, you know, that I really, you know, really rankled with me was... When Peterson talked about the lobsters and the left's response <laughs> was just to make memes about lobsters and to, to scoff at this without ever right. engaging with what he was saying. And the basis of what he was saying, that we share a common ancestor with lobsters and we share some biological structures with lobsters, is totally true. But what they should have said, what the left sh- the left response should have been was that, of course natural hierarchies exist you're taller than me jason uh, you know i'm better looking than you um, you know these these things uh, <laughs> these these natural inequalities exist in the biological world right but you aren't 3 times taller than me and i'm not 10 times better than you where in the world of capital now we have people that are 10 billion times richer than right, other person right, and right. there's no biological right, analog right. for that and that's what the left should have done that's a crucial crucial point point. and nobody it was, wasn't that that issue was just lost among a, 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 a stream of disingenuous cynical memeing and stuff like this and this is where we're at now this is where you know um politics is at you know this is just in the in the absolute gutter and unable to pick on a, on a, on an opponent's point that is such a you know wide open there for a home right. run you know and it was
0: it was a ridiculous point that he made in a certain sense not that lobsters don't do that but it's like well but you know like that, that that that's so easy to refute because then you can say well if lobsters do that, therefore you can say that anything that is done in the entire animal kingdom must must therefore apply to human beings and, yeah, you, see yeah, people, um, you know, it's like, which is ridiculous. In yeah,
1: exactly. Um, that you uh, know, precisely that we shouldn't have this inequality. You know, we shouldn't have these massive forms of inequality because we should have equality that is analogous to biological inequality, you know, which right. is which is, is, is completely negligent and comparable to the inequality of capital. Again, right. you know, one man might be t- twice or three times as tall as another man, but he's never going to be a billion times taller.
0: You could also say, like, well, you know, uh, female spiders eat their mates. So, so uh, let's so why are you know let's uh, reject modernity, embrace Christian. You know, so, so it's just some ridiculous. people are some people are probably into that. <laughs> but um, yeah, what, what was the point I was going to make with that? Uh, well, yeah, you have to you have to address the argument, and I think that certainly this is something that is constantly harped on 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 the right. You know, it's like, well, but it, both sides are doing it, and and I think that. <sighs> It's hard to say, it's always hard to say because people are so controlled and also fundamentally lazy, but there are many times, um, there have been many moments in the last two, three years in America where it very much seems that things are veering towards violence, right? And, and... And they have in many cases, uh, let's, you know, on, in, from both from across the political spectrum. Now, what, you know, and again, we can make the point there. It's like, um, you know, the Capitol riot, you know, th- th- was largely the two people, the head of the Proud Boys and the head of that other faction, the three percenters, both turn out to be FBI informants, right? So, and it, so, so, and I'm sure the same on the left, you know, it's like, so, you know, and there's such a historical precedence for that going back to the 60s. But, um, you know, and we have mass shootings here like every day and things like this. And so, so we, we very much seem to have been in a cold civil war. So I want to make for, for a couple of years or maybe more, certainly it, the threads of it go back to the nineties and, and even the eighties. The end of manufacturing in America was the beginning of it. But even in the nineties, we had things like, um, Waco, Ruby Ridge, Oklahoma bombing, things like, you know, there was, there was a hot war, uh, which is forgotten now. But, um, the, um, I think I wanted to make two points and then ask you a question, which is, one is, we were talking about Marx, I think you can, I think you can quite, it's quite, you know, quite easy to make the point that almost everything that has happened post-Marxism in world history has largely been, and particularly all the wars and things like that, have been efforts to prevent the, the arising of class consciousness. Right in the sense you have World War One, right, which is this—you know—you just get all the proletariat to kill each other over nationalism, <laughs> right? And just decimate everything, and then which of course leads on to World War Two, which is we have the the rise of the Soviet Union, but also the backlash from the brown shirts and all of this, and again this mass killing. Then we have the Cold War, and, and just on and on, right? And just there's a, just a domino effect across the across the 20th century, and it's it's all catalyzed largely by the fear you could make the. You make the argument, I think, fairly fairly plain that that it's most of it is catalyzed by the terror of uh, the terror of the elite of the of, uh, of, a, of a of an awakened proletariat, right? Or of the effect of, of Marxism on on suddenly what you were saying, which is no. What as Marx was saying, it's like no, the proletariat is not not oppressed at all. In fact, they have all of the power. They hold all of the cards. Um, they just have not been be, been made aware of it. They haven't developed class consciousness and there's great interest against them developing class consciousness. And that's just a fact. You know, my my critique of the Marxist analysis is, well, is this perhaps the best strategy anymore because labor is not as much of a bargaining chip anymore because human labor is is being outmoded in many senses. You know, classic example, Kodak, you know, Polaroid. Uh, Polaroids used yeah. to employ how many thousands of people? Instagram employs like eight people, right? So- Something like that. So um, I could I could be wrong about the current numbers, but there's you know there's, there, there's much fewer people are needed to run a, a technological machine. So I think that it is obviously in our current moment, quite transparent, at least to me, that this extreme polarization, which everyone is aware of now, whether it's you know, and people talk about it in left-right terms, but really that doesn't matter. Just the extreme polarization of playing people against each other, of divide and conquer, of of using algorithms to to amplify rage, um, and the everyone being pitted against everyone around them quite obviously serves the interests of um, the technocrats in the same way that shutting down the whole planet and putting small businesses completely out of, you know, just crushing small business serves people like Bezos or Elon Musk, who are just extracting billions out of the the global economies while this happens. I think it's quite obvious that this extreme polarization is playing, is being manipulated and playing into the interests of the, the very wealthy, the very powerful, these people who are a billion times more wealthy, as you're saying, you know, than everyone else and are able to control the mind of the world now through te- information technology. So one thing that I've been interested in, because I've been seeing the perhaps inevitability of this devolving into violent conflict between groups who actually have much more in common than they have not in common. Um, I've been studying, I've been looking at a few models. One is um, the um, the ethnic cleansings and genocides in uh, Bosnia right? And the Serbian war and all of this in, in the 90s. And the other is the troubles in Ireland, right? And so I wanted to maybe ask you about, and and I apologize in advance, because I understand it's <laughs> a very offensive thing to ask in Ireland. Oh, you, know, <laughs> you know, perhaps if there's parallels or, or, or thoughts you can share, you were talking earlier about, you know, the involvement of intelligence agencies and things like that. Because I think it may, I think that I will say that it's not a, it's not a, it's clearly not a one-to-one situation, but in terms of models for what might happen in America, the troubles are a good one to look at, I think. And the reason is because that we're talking about um, asymmetrical urban warfare and we're talking about people going about their day-to-day life largely and then sporadic outbursts of violence happening which i think is quite likely to be how things happen in america another way to look at that would be like the 30 years war or the 100 years war where like everything was fine for like a year or three years and then all of a sudden people were fighting again and then it was fine again but it just kept going in the same way that in a smaller scale mass shootings are happening here but i just wanted to get your thoughts about that maybe
1: yeah, I'm gonna preface what I say by saying uh, that I don't know, right? Uh, I have loads to say, but I'm gonna I'm gonna preface it with I don't know, uh, really. And you know, I, I mean that very sincerely in, in in the sense that I vacillate between two possibilities in my head in terms of this, in terms of violence, because uh, it's something that I'm interested in. Um, when when it comes to um, you know, I think there is definitely a really interesting par- parallel, and it's an illuminating parallel in terms of the troubles because, um, what was done very explicitly, very constantly. Um, was to make the troubles about Catholics versus Protestants, right? That was the narrative. That was the narrative in our state broadcaster that it was different from our liberations, our historical liberation struggle in the the 1800s and the 1900s. That was about national liberation. This was about Protestants and Catholics fighting. And that was what the British tried to do. The British intelligence agencies and the British media was to say that these are two tribes going at each other, right? And the major, major immediate problem with that narrative was that um, conflict on this island predates the reformation by hundreds of years that, that you know it's so simple but again just got, get, rarely got pointed out but what did get pointed out was the republican movement always asserted that their enemy was not um, the, the, the protestant um, uh, people you know listen, the Republican movement did not always live up to those words by any stretch of the imagination. Um, uh, you know, and the, the the sentiment was that they were going to unite um, Catholics and, and Protestants and, you know, look, it never happened uh, for whatever reason. But it did, you know, try and assert that and reject the... the um, the English portrayal of this as an internal Irish problem between two sets of of people on this island for doctrinal differences, you know, whether it's consubstantiation or transubstantiation or whatever it is. Um, So I think that's different in the sense that that has not been, you know, this idea of them versus us Oh, actually, the real enemy is, is the capitalist. That's not being as clearly articulated by the left in the way that the Republican movement tried to articulate. No, it's the British that are, it's British soldiers. I mean, one of the slogans was, um, you know, after Brits out, which was an IRA slogan, it was, um, tourists, yes, troops, no. Um, you know, to make that distinction, uh, you know, clear. So so I think that is different than, you know, I think the analogy could be instructive in that sense to make us try and see that, um, you know, we are being um, distracted, you know, intentionally distracted. Uh, you know, but what what I'm worried about Um, in terms of our future of violence and stuff like this. Uh, You know, I I read Stephen Pinker's The Better Angels of Our Nature and he talks about the decline of violence and statistically say in Ireland, the murder rate has gone down. Of course, the troubles aren't live anymore um, and and people aren't being killed um, in in that conflict. Um, And, you know, there's this idea, for example, again, so we have a, you know, a community, a black community really in Ireland for the first time, a sizable black community. And there's this panic, you know, in in the town where my little brother lives in Balbriggan about, uh, you know, muggins and stuff like this, you know, and I heard some guy from there say, oh, this was never like this, you know what I mean? And I'm like, your cousin isn't. Prison for shooting a fella in the head, you know, <laughs> like, and he's not seeing that, you know what I mean? Like, you know, and it, well, like, I would I say it was much the irony, yeah, yeah. I was much; it was much more violent in the past, and I, and I think about when I started drinking, for example, I was going to pubs. There was a fight in the, in the pub every Saturday night. There was a physical fight, and you don't see it in the same way anymore. Despite the fact that you see a video of a, a lot of youths uh, mugging somebody or somebody for their mobile phone, and people think that the world has ended because of it. Like, you know, I mean, you know, so so I think what what I'm worried about though is the possibility. And Pinker, again, Pinker, I think, was criticised on um, a basis that he shouldn't have been criticised on. And what he should have been criticised on was this, that he did not deal sufficiently with the possibility that we will enter a world of no violence, but where we are tortured mentally all day, every day. And that's what, what I'd be more scared of than a descent into, into violence. But again, I don't know what's 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 going to happen. So I'm, I'm as interested in your thoughts on this as as you are in mine, Jason. Well, I, th- I think,
0: yeah, I mean... <sighs> I remember when I lived in I lived in London in 2004, and I, it was such a wake up call for me because the, it's interesting because the view of the view of people in uh, Europe is that Americans are are savages just running around shooting each other. It's like it's <laughs> like America is like some cross between a John Wayne movie and a Dr. Dre video, but um, uh, the reality is most outside of the the mass shooting problem that we do have, um, people are very polite and and I was shocked when I lived in this was just in London like but when I lived there, like I would be coming home, like you said, I'd be coming home on a a Saturday night and there'd just be pools of blood on the, on the tube floor, you know, and it was just because because violence was casual. People would just knife each other and it was, and it was like an entertainment, I think, you know, like people would burn off steam that way, but you can't do that here because people just shoot you. So, (laughs) so, and that was so shocking for me because it was so counter to the, the narrative of, you know the kind of um, narrative I've been raised with of seeing Americans as savage, savage and violent. like, You know, Robert. Robert people Heinlein, as genteel and polite. Yeah, not the case. Yeah. <laughs> right, like Robert Heinlein made the point. You know, a well armed society is a polite society. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. kind of true. And and I think that. But that said, to your the Stephen Pinker point, I have two thoughts about it. One is, yeah, we live in a, just statistically speaking, up till recently, which I want to address in a second. Um, we live in a shockingly nonviolent society right where just the the violence rates at least in the US i don't know about the rest of the world but in the US the violent the murder rate the violence rates have just plummeted since the early 70s they were through the roof in the 70s you know the taxi yeah. driver era and they've just been going down and, down and down and down and down and down and down and and we live in a more peaceful um society although i will say that okay but um what we're not factoring there is all the wars that the U.S. still conducts around the world, and they call them peacekeeping efforts or humanitarian, <laughs> blowing the shit out sure. of everyone with drones. But just it's yeah. just kept from people, and violence was not for... So in Vietnam, You know the reason there was such an effective anti-war movement in Vietnam is because it was the first time that body bags had been shown on TV. It was the first time a war had been shown on TV, and people were seeing images of their... Their kids coming back in body bags. That's why there was an anti-war movement. And then starting from the Gulf War on, that's been sanitized. Only journalists have been only given privilege access. The military totally controls the narrative. They learn the lesson. And so, so the question is perception, well, what angle are you viewing it from? You know, I think if you're in a hospital getting bombed in Syria uh by Hillary Clinton's drones, you know, a few <laughs> years ago, then I don't think yeah. that you would feel that way. But I will say that. Yes, you know, we live in a much safer, a very safe culture in which we are being mentally tortured by the fact that we are all instantaneously connected by electronic media. And, and, and uh, one of my favorite quotes of all time, uh, Jimmy Carter's advisor, later Obama's advisor, national security advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski said, he wrote a paper in the 60s where he said something like, it was the most prophetic comment ever. Uh, he's a great he, he, name of the, his paper was like, uh, you know, the technotronic age or something like that so he was talking about the coming of technocracy. And he said he said the 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 instantaneous electronic intermeshing of, of mankind will lead to strained social peace and constant breakdown. And he was talking about there's going to be a global brain happening and talking already straight in the late 60s strategically about how to approach that. So they saw all this coming. So. I think that that's true to some point. But the, my counterpoint to that also is that the the violence rates have been going down and down and down and down until 2020, at which point they skyrocketed all over the U.S. I mean, like really? the murder rate is up something like 1600 percent in Portland. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't quote. I can't cite that stat. But I have, I've yeah. seen it. I don't know if that's exactly true, but it's certainly it's up like close to 100 percent in Los Angeles, all over, you know, very much up in Chicago, all over the whole Ah, country, because we've just been in this time of COVID riots, lawlessness, defunding yeah. the police, uh, all of this, and 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 um, you know, in many cases, like in many cases, they def- It's just a mess, right? It's just a yeah. mess, and and so we now unfortunately live in a shockingly violent time again, and in the U.S., everyone's hoarding guns and ammo and terrified and just reacting in total fear and. And um, that's another reason why I'm quite concerned about mass violence breaking out, particularly as we've seen in the US, the the Democratic Party and the technocrats have just simply silenced one side of the, uh, they've just silenced the opposition and they're making it into a situation now where they want to pack the Supreme Court so they have permanent power and whether one is left or right, at least for American politics, that has to be disturbing because, there's one side, you know, it, it's interesting in the US also, there's been a political realignment where there's essentially, there was always kind of only one party, but now there really is where you had basically people like um, Dick Cheney and George Bush supporting Biden. Yeah. You know, and it's yeah. like, yeah. so there's just one, the, the party of the establishment, right. Yeah. Like making yeah. it so that there can never be any opposition to it again. And yet yeah. the supposed left too. I really see, I think it isn't very important to distinguish the left from neoliberal neoliberals right yeah and, well, yeah then, absolutely that's critical but the the neoliberal uh the the reddit tier liberals as i call them right yeah like they're very much you know i see them as like they're basically the the human resources department of power or or wish to be the human resources department in the same way that with their 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 language policing uh um, yeah. and i think that in america we have a situation where forgive me if i'm rambling but in in america we have very much have the situation where middle class has been gutted and there's only so many seats available at the corporate yeah. table. so people are vicious they're coming out of the yeah, yeah, absolutely. And viciously fighting and if they can't get a if you can't get a seat well they can tear somebody they can tear somebody down
1: that's people it so
0: them, much you know? yeah
1: so much of this is explicable in that way and you know this this atmosphere of of moralism about language uh, you know, at a time when people are being dispossessed of, of you know, um, their, their ability to, to have a secure home and, and stuff like this. And, and people are like, you know, get protesting over what some idiot p- politician says, you know, words that he says. Well, the fact that, um, you know, Hillary Clinton and um, Obama, uh, you know, treated Libya like a magician who takes a watch smashes it with a hammer and then says I forgot the rest of the trick and it's the second time he's done it you know um, you know that's you know that that level of evil, and yet, it, what incenses people more is 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 some you know uh, remark that that doesn't conform to to to, to a standard of etiquette that it has essentially no um, material consequences. It's just yeah, and, so and
0: Just robust. briefly, I mean, not not to interrupt you, but just for the last like four years, it's been if you have pointed out what you just pointed out, said something about Obama, it's like, well, what would you would you Trump supporter? You want Trump to win? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, of course,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it's a an absurd time to be alive but my ma said you know she said that uh um, these people, she was a single mother and in Ireland was was very Catholic. You know, we've just come out with this. And I feel like we've got a new church now of this, you know, NGO industrial complex and these, you know, hyper-moralists uh, just after we escaped the, the hyper-moralism of, of the Catholic Church, because Ireland really post-independence was nearly like Iran post-Iranian revolution. It was just the clergy, I mean the bishops were consulted and drafting the constitution and this kind of stuff. Um, and uh, you know, they they had the Archbishop McQuaid had a hotline to the Taoiseach's office and you know, all and you know, could censor books and all sorts of weird things so Moima she said that the the people you know on social media kind of uh um, what did Freddie DeBoer call them? Offense archaeologists digging up things <laughs> to be offended by. You know, they're like the people that used to, you know, the 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 women in the housing estate that used to clean the 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 the, the seats in the church, and they would look down her nose at her and be looking at her and who she was coming in and out of the house with or whatever, and she was a fallen woman and she was bad. You know, she had a mark of of sin on her, and I think it's a very very analogous phenomenon. You know, uh, you know, and it, it's it's pretty repulsive. Uh, you know, to be um you know moralized about the actions of some individual. When again, if you're supposed to be a Marxist, particularly if you're supposed to be, um, you know, wanting to change the system, um,
0: wh- what do you care about what some dickhead says?
1: You know, right. I don't know. I just can't fathom it,
0: you know. Or, or, or to put it differently, what do you care about what powerless people do? Instead of the powerful, you know, and, and, and that's the real tragedy of all of this. It's powerless people attacking each other and making each other less powerful when they should be achieving class consciousness and building each other up. But, um, it's the same here. I mean, here, here it was not the Catholic church was the evangelicals who still have a lot of power, but their power (laughs) was quite diminishing. I mean, they, they, they had their, their Zenith uh, under Reagan, uh, and, and kind of returned under the bushes, but, but, um, particularly Bush Jr., but they really have lost a significant amount of power. And, you know, and occult people feel this, or anyone into anything weird, like I am, feel this particularly acutely in the U.S. because in the 80s, you could be killed for being, easily for being into the types of things that I am where where uh, we had the satanic panic, right? Where anyone who was interested in anything that wasn't evangelical Christianity was a pedophile, you know? And it's similar in the U.K., you know, in certain, certain ways, you know, with the, the pedophile scare and all of that. But, um, you know, when the reality was, it was the Catholic church, <laughs> but, yeah. you know, but, um, but here, you know, that, but now it's totally flipped where, you know, often occult people are the biggest offenders of this where, you know, these people who have built up their identity on being You know, occult people are are often at the edge, they're they're at the cutting edge of cultural change. So very much in the 80s and 90s, um, occult people very much played the um, oppression card of, oh, well, we were, you know, they used to burn witches, right? Which they certainly did, right? So we're, we're, uh, remember the burning times and all this. And now often occult people are the biggest offenders in this of attacking others for their views and, and, and it's got to the point now where even you know harry potter liberals are now suspect you know jk Rowling is 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 uh you know now a cultural artifact when, when she was just the exemplar of 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 this so um i think yeah uh it's it's a it's 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 quite ironic to see occult people witch hunting but you know that's karma I, for you i, I guess. think
1: that's a that's a broader phenomenon though that that's happening that that is really weird and i think um you know, I talked to to someone about you know atmospheres of censoriousness in the past, uh, and you know every writer worth his salt, every Irish writer had to exile himself or or you know as 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 uh, and you know Daniel Defoe was imprisoned, and you know the writers had it much worse than we, than we have it now yeah. in terms of um, censorship and and all of this sort of stuff. But I think what is different—that's how you know think, you're a good writer, you know. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. I hope so. But but, but what I think is different, um, Jason, that you just pointed out is that um the people doing all of this um, censoriousness, let's not call it censorship because, you know, they they don't like saying it's censorship, but censoriousness, the people doing that now think that they're countercultural and think that they're radicals when they're promoting hegemonic, their culture is hegemonic and they're acting as if they're Che Guevara while pushing on an open door, you know, and thats that's really what's weird.
0: It's very weird. It's the same as the baby boomers. It's like it's it's the same as Hillary Clinton going ha- claiming she's hashtag resistance after Donald yeah, Trump. Yeah, like Hillary yeah, Clinton, yeah. the resistance.
1: a yeah. what a complete bureaucrat. You know, you a, know, a, a global um,
0: neocon or neoliberal or whatever you want to call her. Yeah, there's definitely seemed to be something where you know the baby boomers assumed global power, and then <laughs> but they're still they're still revolting against their parents. They're still being Richard Branson, you know. And it's like, well, but you're in power now. So, who are you? What power are you fighting? Like,
1: well, you know, I don't like to see it in um, in in age terms. You have to take it back and, and make it a, no no war, but class war. We won't make it an age thing because you know. Oh, I agree.
0: Not, every generation has to do it. You know, every generation. Of course, of do course, of
1: true. course. But but another thing that that that's actually you you've just um, made me remember that's different about um you know the the kind of the what passes for the left now and the Republican movement, say, um, you know, which is traditionally left-wing in Ireland, um, is that we had a great reverence and respect for older uh, activists and older Republicans and saw them, you know, in very reverential terms for good reason because they make great sacrifices, you know, were imprisoned or or, or martyred in, in many cases. And um, now there's this kind of horrible ageism about like, you know, um, it's it's weird, you know what I mean? And it seems to be um, for, amongst people who talk about about, um, you know, not being discriminatory and, and not stigmatizing groups or whatever. Um, I mean, the aged and the older people, are, you know, are a group with many. In, in some ways, of course, they have more property statistically and they have more power, or whatever statistically, than than young people. But they're at a disadvantage in many other ways. And it seems to me um, there's a cruelty there, I suppose. But there's
0: so much cruelty online, you know, from from every political corner. Uh, yeah, I mean to me. Know, I didn't mean to make it an ageist thing. I mean, this is another <laughs> where people are being divided. But it it's simply yeah. it is true. I mean, it's like bizarre to see. And it, it you know again, I'm not saying all baby boomers, but when you no, see, of course, people, of course, of course. People I, know like people, I know that. I know that. I didn't mean you see to people it. like Hillary Clinton. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. of course, you know, not adapting essentially, or or still playing that card. It's just it's bizarre. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Sorry, I didn't I didn't mean to make out you were saying that it was all I'm just I'm
0: ageist. I own it now. <laughs> no, 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 but it's true. I mean, I think the, the but but dividing people along. And that is something I will say that is something that, 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 that I mean, well, what, what you never want to do is globalize, which is take the actions of one person, and apply it to the entire group. Right. That's the definition of of any of these isms. Right. And so but I was going to say when you had people like um, was it was Abby Hoffman or somebody, uh, Jerry Rubin, you know, in the 60s said never trust anyone over 30. Right. So this is very much an an idea of that time. But cutting cutting the generations is the same as cutting the language. It's the same as cutting people off from their history. It's the same as it removes their identity um you know like i i until recently uh lived in the armenian community in in los angeles and they the it was for the armenians the, the genocide never ended and, and and there's such an effort to remember it because the older generations are just mortified by the idea that the younger that, you know the zoomer generation and things like this will completely forget the Armenian genocide happened. It will be lost because they're in a situation where the genocide was never recognized by the international community. Still, after over a hundred years, and it's just tragic, tragic, tragic. The U.S. won't recognize it because we still want to trade with Turkey and all this stuff, and and various lobbies prevent it from happening. But but um, if if they're sandwiched in between that and the younger generation forgetting their own history, it's like it's like they never existed. And I think one of the great fears for older people must be erasure. Mm-hmm. I mean what what could be more terrifying right so but the 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 way that things are but again, it's the same as class consciousness this is encouraged by the powerful because they just they simply you know I learned a great thing from the Greek Orthodox church where the devil you know Diabolo means to divide to mm-hmm. divide is the action of the didn't devil well right? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I didn't either until I learned that I learned that and it, it what what better you know what and that goes back to the first, one of the first things we said, which was. Um, separation, looking for the differences between things. But the devil mm. details, right? It's like, but yeah. in the details to divide people. Yeah, if, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe if there's something to emerge from this conversation, it's that uh, you know, look for commonality, look for you know, we don't even need to say class consciousness, but it should be about coming together as a powerful group rather than getting, using the most ridiculous things to the most ridiculous things to, 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 but I'll say this, the, the, particularly with language policing, the, 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 the thing that is picked on is always ridiculous, but the result is never ridiculous. And the result is always the same, which is simply to destroy, to d- destroy and conquer. It's to, to divide and conquer. It's to enforce division. And that is not ridiculous. It is extremely uh it is an extremely effective weapon, so it's so it's all too easy, I think, to dismiss language policing and things like that as ridiculous, but they're not ridiculous at all because the effect is not ridiculous. it's incredibly destructive, so it's easy to laugh at it and things like that, but that's one of the reasons why um, that's one of the reasons why people haven't taken it seriously, I think.
1: Yeah well if if you look at it at its basis i suppose language policing is a system of etiquette and etiquette has always been a system to as you said differentiate and to distinguish um, groups and the dominant form of etiquette is the dom- is the etiquette of power. Uh, yeah, so I, I think that's that's a, a good way to put it. And I, I really like um, um, how, how you, you put it about the, the devil and the, that being the word for division and uh, taking that back to, to what we said at the beginning about um, uh, the, the difference, you know, seeking out difference as opposed
0: to seeking out commonality. Well, maybe that's a good place to leave it for until next time. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm reaching the end of my ability to sit. So, uh, but uh, can you? I I want you to let people know where uh, to find you and what you're working on. But before that, can you clarify one great mystery of of, of world history for me, please? Why Why did Bill Clinton speak at Martin McGuinness's funeral? <laughs> can you explain um, that? To me? It's so, it yeah. seems so unlikely. Maybe we should be less
1: cynical. I don't know what I was going to say there was, you know, there, there seems to be a sort of camaraderie among the politicians that were involved in the Good Friday Agreement because Tony Blair spoke in a documentary about Maybe it was about McGuinness or about Adams, you know, and was extolling the virtues of him, you know, this British prime minister extolling the virtues of this IRA man. But then I realized that Clinton wasn't even there. He didn't even, he sent over um, George, um, whatever, I forget his name. He sent over, yeah, yeah. And and he did all the work of the American government and brokering the, the thing. So that camaraderie could never have formed because Clinton, well, you know, essentially wasn't involved, even though he, he took all the credit for it. So we're back to the cynicism again, I'm afraid, Jason. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, okay. Uh, but thank you for for clarifying. Yeah, it's 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 always been a mystery to me. Okay, so uh tell tell people where they can find you and uh what you wanna um uh, what you want them to what you want them to see.
1: Yeah, so I mean the work I'm most proud of is is my novel, but that's out of print now. Um Hopefully, down the line, it will uh, come back out. But they might be able to get it from the library or, or get a second hand. I won't get any money out of it though. That's the only thing. So that's called Dublin Seven, and it's uh, seven, which is very important to. Um, uh, seven is dear to the mystical mind, said W. B. 8 and but it's seven spelt S E V E N by Frankie Gaffney. Um, so look out for that uh, down the line. But um, the only the only thing that I, I really have to, to, to sell is uh, Tara Morgan's Dubliners Now podcast. And that's available on Patreon, so it's Dubliners now. And if you're not sick of hearing me talk uh, nonsense, you can hear me talk more nonsense on there. But again, I'm talking to a to a host of, of interesting cultural figures, and uh, most of them Irish, but you
0: know some of them from fur, further afield on there. Uh, excellent yeah no that was an that was an awesome that was an awesome conversation i think i think so um yeah so check check out the podcast please everyone it's uh and it's a video podcast too right you do you have like you're like super high production values i've noticed
1: <laughs> yeah well it's it's Tara's baby so Tara is a brilliant photographer you should check her out as well she's on instagram tara moran photography um and she takes uh, really passionate beautiful um, the, you know you call them landscapes of Dublin but really they're portraits of Dublin And um, so the, the, the podcast project is generally shot on location in pubs in Dublin uh, some historic pubs uh, we have a, a, for example we have um, an episode about James Joyce and it's shot in a pub that's mentioned in Ulysses um, and we're sitting there drinking pints of Guinness so if you're of Irish heritage or you're Irish diaspora um, and you're you're missing home on those pints of Guinness which a lot of people are now because we can't even get a point here because the pubs are all shut yeah. Um you can you can check that out but um yeah so we've had to do some some audio only of late but we'll be getting back to doing them
0: in the pubs hopefully soon enough awesome well uh, i will definitely check it out and i hope the listeners do too okay thank you very much frankie and we will have to do another conversation soon thanks so much jason okay that was frankie gaffney i love that interview i hope you did too there's lots more to come so make sure you're subscribed to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify uh, or wherever and tell your friends about it. Tell your family about it. Tell your enemies about it. Tell people you don't know about it. Tell everyone about it. Uh, we got a lot more coming. Uh, and make sure to follow me on Instagram at magic.me. Oh, P.S., I have a TikTok now because why not? At magic.me on TikTok. Uh, and of course, you can find out everything at my website, magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot All right. See you in the next episode. Hang in there. Lots of love. Bye.